This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor at DCU. Hi, this is Nadia DeFilippis. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vandal. Hi, this is Lieber Mayo. Hi, this is Brian Ezrelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. And this is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fertaccio. This is Adam Beachin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 55. I'm your host, Dustin, and today we have with us... This is Zach. And this is Donovan. And Josh will be joining us from a satellite location later for our reviews. So let's get right into comic news. We've got a decent amount of books to cover, and we got a lot of news to cover as well. So let's get into the first thing. Every punk in this town is scared stiff. They say he can't be killed. They say he drinks blood. Is there a six-foot back in Gotham City? On November 2nd, J.H. Williams uh, talked a little bit about Batwoman with IGN. And there's a couple questions we're going to go over. So I will read for IGN, and Zach will read for J.H. Williams III. You guys are starting the book off with a number zero issue next month. How does that issue play into the main series, and how representative is it of what readers can expect from Batwoman in general? What's interesting about issue zero is that it's not really going to be a direct lead into the series or be a full representation of what people can expect from the series because we had actually already started at writing and drawing issue one before issue zero was decided to be done. And at first Hayden and I had some reservations about doing an issue zero because we had already put a lot of effort into issue one being the starting point for the series. We were pretty reluctant about the whole thing and were afraid that we wouldn't come up with something that had as much punch as the first issue would have. It was kind of tricky a tricky balance to find a way to do something interesting that didn't dissolve the intensity of the first issue but yet was strong enough that it could be its own thing as well the issue zero is more like a little bridge of what can come before and what is coming up next it's pretty much a standalone tale in a lot of ways but it has connecting threads to what came before and what's going to be coming up but at the same time it's pretty autonomous as well so <laughs> i think it works as an interesting like primer for the series even though it's not direct plot points except for one little element that will carry through into the series I imagine a lot of Batman books over the next few months are going to be focusing on how the various members of the Bat family are impacted by the return of Bruce Wayne. How would you say Kate is affected by the news, if at all? It's definitely going to play a role in our series, but at the same time, we don't want to lose the voice of the series. I think each of the Bat titles probably has a struggle ahead of them as far as the same mentality in regards to what they're doing. Each book needs to be autonomous, but also reflect the bigger events going on. That's how it's going to affect our series, really. We're doing our thing. The things that Kate Kane has to face are relatively separate from the bigger picture of things going on with Batman. But at the same time, what's going on with Batman sort of encroaches on Kate's life in interesting ways. Because of those events, we'll see her have to make some interesting choices about her position in Gotham City. Batwoman number zero is going to be coming out later this month, and we'll be sure to be reviewing that on an upcoming podcast. On November 3rd, Comic Book Resources posts up an interview with Paul Cornell about his upcoming run on Batman Robin. As we know, Cornell has been writing action comics and is currently writing the Night and Squire miniseries. He's going to be jumping on Batman Robin for a three-issue story arc. I don't want to say this, but I'm going to. A filler story to kind of take some time for Peter Tomasi before he jumps on the book in February. So I will read for comic book resources and Don will read for Paul Cornell. 
And the hits keep on coming. When did you learn you would be jumping onto Batman Robin? And more importantly, how quickly did the story you're going to tell come together? Mike Marks contacted me just a couple of weeks ago. It was quite easy for me to say yes, because I've had this story and this villain in my head since I tried to pitch a badly written version of it to Bob Shrek about a decade ago. Does your tale pick up right after Grant Morrison's story ends in Batman Robin number 16? Not exactly. We're a little while into Batman Inc. and Bruce is abroad. I keep the heat up by playing my biggest possible story, and hopefully I don't mess it up before Peter arrives. From the recently released solicitations, it appears your story features Dick and Damien, so the question has to be asked. Where's Bruce Wayne, and will he be playing a role into your arc? Bruce is away, and I think that we only see him on one page at the end of a phone line. He's got important stuff to do in, the, in another country, so it, would be, so it would be now that something from his past brews up out of the river. Can you share any details about the story you're going to tell in Batman and Robin, number 17 through 19? It's a nasty, mad story about a new villain. It's Dick and Damien's dealing with something that isn't their fault, and lets us see something about how they relate to Bruce in different ways. I'm not familiar with Una Nemo. Is she a new character you've created for your for the arc, or an existing one from the Batman mythos? What can you tell us about her? She's new. She's one of those girls on Bruce Wayne's arms, arm who suffered from being associated with him. What about the absence? Again, according to the solicitation, he's a mad, gory villain, but that could best describe half of Batman's rogues gallery. What separates him from the other mad, gory villains like the Joker and the Scarecrow? He's nothing in particular. There's nothing to him. There's nobody at home. Alright, so that's the end of the interview. I'm interested to see what Cornell does, mostly because I think Cornell's writing style, one, is readable, two, it's enjoyable, um, and three, I think he can tell good stories overall. So, I mean, it'll be interesting. I don't know that this story that we're going to read is actually best suited in Batman Robin, but that that's we'll see later on this month. Yeah, Cornell, the best thing about him since he's come to DC is the number one thing he does right is he writes fun comics. And that's why, you know, I look forward to this. And I would say that this being in Batman and Robin, I don't think really fits because I think with when we talk about issue 16 and now moving into what we're getting with issue 17, this book is going to go at a completely different pace. And I don't know that it's really going to fit, but I do think he doing something interesting here uh his description of his villain is is really helpful his name's the absence so there's nothing to him oh okay so <laughs> i get it yeah but I, I think he writes really fun comic books and so i i look forward to seeing what he does here you hit on a good point the problem is going to be that batman robin's been this consistent story that's been going on and then we're going to kind of veer off the course of the book to tell this story to give Peter Tomasi time to in between him writing. And the issue I have with that is that it just seems like this is not the book that you can do that. You can't take something that, you know, that Grant Morrison's been working on for over a year and decide, hey, so this is what we're going to do. Uh, we want this, we want Peter Tomasi on the book, and then we're going to decide, sorry, he can't be on the book right away. We're going to give him a little bit of time off. So we're going to take this book that's been consistently, you know, one of our top ten books of the month for the past year and a half. We're going to do that. We're going to take this book, and we're going to tell a fun story instead of telling a story that is, you know, is in what's going on. I'm not sure if that's going to happen. I mean, look what they did with Red Robin. That was the first year was all about him trying to get back, uh, find the truth about Bruce Wayne, and then that, that's kind of gone off in a different direction. I think that it will just be natural to the characters. I don't see um, from going from Paul Cornell to Peter Tomasi, it'll be that much of a whiplash. I can I, I understand how that how you have that uh, concern, but 
I think I think it'll be all right. I'm I'm actually kind of interested in this this, this story with the new villain. How it's supposed to portray their relationship to Bruce. So I'm looking forward to it, but I don't think it'll be too uh, too jarring. Well, I think the the jarring thing is going to be going from Morrison to Cornell. First of all, I, I, I don't think Cornell, he's a good writer, but I don't think he's going to be writing the Dick and Damien relationship as well. It was written by Morrison in the previous 16 issues. Grant, uh, Grant Morrison's run on Batman and Robin was so high energy. It was so intense. And I think that this book is going to, it's not going to be the big book anymore. And so I think a lot of people are going to have a hard time with like going from what happens in 16 to going to what happened with Cornell's writing. It's just going to be a dr- drastic change. It may still be a good book, but I, it's not going to be the same. And that's what I think where the concern could be. Yeah. All right. So let's get into our next bit of news. On November 5th, Comic Resources talked with David Hine. As we know, Hine is working on Azrael, and in December, he's going to be writing the Detective and Batman annuals. So he gave us a little bit of what we can expect in not only Azrael, but also in the annuals this coming into the future. So, I will read for Comic Book Resources, and Zach will read for David Hine. What are your thoughts on where the Bat family is right now, and what do you like about the direction the books are going in, specifically with the Batman name as a franchise? There will always be room for classic Batman stories, and I think that for anyone who grew up with Bruce as Batman and Dick as Robin, that will be the relationship that remains at the heart of the Batman title. After 70 years, we have to also be playing some sort of some different games with the characters, and Grant has de- certainly done that. He's a genius at spinning all kinds of permutations around the core concept. Batman Inc. promises to be one of the most innovative and exciting of his riffs on the Batman theme. Most American comics are so USA-based that it limits their potential. I love the idea of Batman going global. It's a great opportunity to expand the worldview, appeal to new audiences, and just to get the hell out of Dodge for a while. If it's successful, this will be a chance to explore the whole superhero vigilante mindset from a different from totally different cultural perspective. It needs to be more than just a world tour for a few postcard scenery backdrops. Pulp culture is different in France, Japan, or Mexico, and as creators, we have to make the connections, not simply impose on one American brand on the local landscape alongside McDonald's and Starbucks. So let's just mention a new character possibly joining the Bad Family. What can you say about that and about the character, him or herself? Batman Incorporated is all about setting up the franchise throughout the world with local operatives. I wanted to introduce a French character who gets away from the stereotype. So we have a young guy from the suburbs of Paris who is into free running or parkour. He goes by the name of Night Runner. He's an amazing athlete, but he's grounded in the reality of the less privileged areas of Paris with its low-income, ethnically mixed population. They are financially poor, but they have a very rich street culture. We also introduce a rapper called Lenny Urbana, who is loosely based on the real-life Kenny Arcana. Kyle Higgins is writing backup strips for these annuals that delve deeper into the background of these characters. This story will show the real Paris that goes beyond the tourist scenery and hopefully will be recognizable to French readers. Shifting gears a bit, tell us what you're cooking up in the next pages of Azrael. How's the changing dynamic of the other Bat books affected this title? Azrael will be involved in the whole Batman Incorporated event. But in his case, it's more a question of whether or not he'll, he will answer the call and allow himself to be drafted into the group. Ezreal is far more of a loner than the rest of the Bat family, and he only takes orders from God and his conscience. All right, so that's the end of that interview. Will he be Jesus? Um, what? <laughs> will he be Jesus? It's a legitimate question. Will Batman say, Jesus, I need you, I need you in Chicago. On my way. Yeah, I don't, I don't see Chicago that. doesn't exist in the DC universe. I don't know, I'm yeah. sure someone. 
I, I've got to say, I think it's kind of an interesting thought. I think he's got an interesting thought when it comes to taking Batman global. It does make it so that uh, international readers of comics who pick up any of the Batman books, who specifically Batman Incorporated, and see Batman in France, in uh, Argentina, in Japan, I think it's... One, it's like kind of cool call out because instead of constantly reading Batman in the United States, they see Batman in their you know in their hometown per se. So I think that's an interesting idea, and the fact that he says if it's done correctly and people embrace it, it can change the whole superhero villain initiative across the world. Well, that's a good point because I mean think about it. We've got Knight and Squire who became famous because Grant Morrison was writing them in Batman and Robin. And they appeared in Batman when Grant Morrison was writing it too, and they've become popular enough to for them to get a miniseries, and it's written by a British guy in a, in British form, uh, constant British references, and I think specifically the people who live in Britain are are loving it. I mean, I'm loving it too, but I think it's really kind of like a call out to them it's hey this is what you know you guys can have your your moment in comics too and i think that's a cool idea the one thing i found really interesting was his instead of using the existing character that was already based in france who was involved with the uh club of heroes who was the musketeer he's decided to use somebody completely different i don't understand that but i do like it's more of a modern version instead of some guy who really has no modern incarnations. The thing, one of the questions, his first question that he answered, I felt like he was kind of taking a jab at the whole Batman Inc. thing at first, and then he kind of reiterated what he was saying and made it sound like he was really into it. I think these two characters that he's describing are a, a rapper and a, and a free runner <laughs> in France. That, that's, uh, that's really interesting to me. I'm not really a huge David Hine fan, but I think I like I like the idea that he has going right now. That he seems to really have embraced this idea, and uh, I'm glad that Azrael is gonna kind of dive into Batman Inc. idea instead of going with the I'm the descendant of Jesus thing, which I'm sure we'll get some of, but maybe it won't be as prominent as I was fearing it was going to be. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it, it it almost sounded like someone was jabbing him in the side when he went and said "shup shup shup," and he said he kind of went back on his Batman ink and in, in, uh, opinions. But uh, yeah, David Hine, I I agree with Zach. He's very hit or miss. I kind of liked that uh, that that confidential story he had with Superman. It was alright, but then like that Azrael story, I I hated. So I, it, this is another like wait and see thing. But with Azrael, they 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 better make this really good. I really like David Hines' work when he was doing the Arkham Asylum stuff because he introduced new characters that were relevant to the story instead of just, oh, I'm creating these characters because I need to have somebody who does this. I thought what he did with Arkham Asylum was perfect and how it played into what was going on with Jeremiah Arkham and Black Mask in the pages of Batman 2. I thought that was really good. I think what he's been doing in Azrael just... I think so. Honestly, it's it seems like it's a completely different writer. It doesn't even seem like the same stuff that he did in Arkham Asylum. So my question is: I wonder if someone said, "Okay, so this is what's been going on in the pages of Azrael. We need you to continue this," because it doesn't seem like he'd be writing the stuff that we're reading in Azrael. Now, don't get me wrong. Last last issue of Azrael, I thought was pretty decent. Decent, huh. Huh. pretty decent. I didn't say it was good. I just it was decent. 
So I don't understand why they're still going on about this crazy thing about him being a descendant of Jesus. And I really hope <laughs> that bringing Azrael back into the Bat family and back into Gotham gets him more involved with what's going on in the events of Gotham City. So we're not having to get these insane stories about him being the descendant of Jesus. But one thing I would add, too, is he was talking about these different Batman in France and Batman in Mexico. Um, maybe David Hine isn't exactly aware of this, but there are actual knockoff Batman. Uh, there used to be an Italian Batman TV show. There's actually a oh, Batman Mexican comic book that you can find that uh, Batman kind of has a the bandit mustache thing going on. But, uh, <laughs> and then, of course, there's the Batmanga. So there are, you know, other variations in other countries of Batman. So I... Just, just going to point that out. And we will definitely try to find some of those pictures of the Mexican <laughs> Batman with his villain-like mustache. All right, so let's get into our next interview. The next one was done by IGN, and it was done with Grant Morrison, and he talks about a number of things related to Batman, Inc. So I will read for IGN, and Donovan will read for Grant Morrison. You describe Batman and Robin must die as a tragedy of Batman R.I.P. repeated as a farce, and it definitely seems to be playing out like that. How would you describe Batman Inc.? How does it fit into the tapestry you've been weaving these past few years with Batman, Batman Robin, Final Crisis, and The Return of Bruce Wayne? Batman Inc. seems like a whole new direction because all that other stuff kind of comes to a point and ends in the whole Dr. Hurt side of the story. So all that stuff, the supernatural Batman, the sci-fi Batman, it's kind of all over at that point. I'm thinking of taking it in its to its logical conclusion Obviously, I wanted to bring Burt back, have the villain do his thing, have his comeback, and then finally his takedown. The whole story was always set up that way. But with Batman Inc., we kind of just wanted to start completely fresh like we did with Batman and Robin. It's a completely new take on Batman with new stuff, new situations, and a new storytelling style. Everything about it will hopefully feel fresh. That was the idea of it. I've heard Dan DeDio describe Batman Inc. as Bruce Wayne franchising the Batman persona. What do you find interesting about that concept slash premise? While I was looking at the way culture was and how people were kind of idolizing the billionaire hero, I also liked the Tony Stark as tech aspects of Batman and wanted to bring some of that in, in as well. Andy Diggle did a good story a couple of years ago where it was a very high-tech Batman with robots type of thing. So I figured I hadn't really touched on that aspect of Batman yet, so that was one of the things that played into it. Another thing that played into it was, a, was the Magic Christian, which is a Peter Sellers movie I love. I like the idea of what would happen if a radical progressive was a billionaire. What would he do? And the big thing was, really, because we were bringing back Bruce Wayne, I thought it was important to, to foreground the idea to Bruce Wayne. A lot of what came before was about the myth of Batman. Batman Incorporated takes it back to the new ground, to ground level and grassroots and feeling a little more like Christopher Nolan or Denny O'Neill's Batman to start with. In terms of the concept, because we were foregrounding Bruce, I began to think of, about the concept of what would happen if Bruce applied his techniques to the Batman operation. Bruce is obviously a corporate city CEO, billionaire and playboy Superman. So what would Batman look like when that guy applied everything that he normally applies to Wayne Tech to Batman's mission and way of life? Suddenly that got me on, on this different way of thinking about it. It was basically Bruce getting to these various Batman types and giving them the money and Wayne Tech providing them with tanks and all this new fun stuff. I also love the idea of Bruce using the Batman symbol as the Red Cross or the McDonald's slogan. The idea that people would see his ages with this symbol, which obviously carries a lot of weight. So that's the end of that interview. You know, everything that I've heard about Batman Inc. sounds interesting. I think it's really cool bringing the other countries in. And then everything that he's saying specifically, you know, taking it back to the ground level and grassroots to be more like Christopher Nolan or Denny O'Neill's Batman, I think that's a 
cool idea. I don't mind the supernatural and sci-fi Batman every once in a while, but Morrison's been doing that for quite some time. So bringing it down to, you know, the normal level, you know, the level of more logical, I think that's a really cool idea, and I'm, I can't wait for Batman Inc. Yeah, I think a lot of people were fearing with Batman Inc. that Morrison was going to, the craziness was going to continue, but I really think that with Batman and Robin ending now, and, and we're going to get to Batman Inc., I think Batman... The Batman universe is kind of going to... Things are going to go back to normal for a while. I don't think the Batman Inc... I like this idea a lot. I know a lot of people don't like this idea, but I don't expect this idea to, like, last within the next 70 years of Batman comics. But I think it's, you know, I think it's a fun idea. I think it's interesting. It's taking the character in a very bold new direction, which I'm always for. I mean, we've had 70 years of Batman the way Batman has been. Let's do something different. I'm all for that. I find it interesting that he name-dropped uh, Nolan and O'Neill as, like, what he's planning to do because I, I I think when Morrison first started out on Batman, we were getting sort of, like, typical Batman stuff and typical, you know, like, the usual stuff, but it was um, edging towards what he's doing now, the more um, out there, kind of what Justin said, illogical kind of stories. So I'm, I'm interested to see how he's going to approach that and if he's going to go... It, it really back to basics because Batman is that type of... I don't want to pigeonhole him in one type of thing, but when you think of Batman, you do think of like the, the crime fighter who you know stalks the night and catches criminals, not this guy who hops around countries in a plane, gives people a business card, and tells them to be Batman for however long. So I'm interested to see how it plays out. One thing that I think some people are misinterpreting is I think I don't know that they're going to go around like Batman's going to go around the world and tell people here, here's a Batman costume, dress up as Batman. I think it's more going to be like what he just said in that interview where he said it's, you know, it's a logo. It's like a badge of honor. I think it's going to be more like that. I don't know that it's necessarily going to be something that people, you know, it's, I don't think that there's really going to be a thousand Batman running around in Batman's. No, no, I, I, I didn't mean to uh, say that. I, I didn't mean to hint that I, I think that there's going to be like, like Dick Grayson, like people in Batman costumes. I don't think it's going to be that, but like the idea of, People around the world basically working for Batman is weird, and and that's something that I want to see play out, hopefully for the better. Because it's basically I I go back to the idea that basically Batman is taking over the planet. I mean, like like there are heroes all over the planet. Why does he have to, Why does he feel like he has to do this specifically? So I'm interested to see how it will play out. I'm a little hesitant, but I'm also just as much interested. Well, Batman, because he's so distant from the rest of the heroes, I don't really feel like he feels like he can rely on the JLA. And I think the idea behind Batman Inc. is that because he went through this, you know, huge life-changing event, that he's, he's in, in a sense, creating his own army. But it's kind of like, you know, if this ever were to happen again, he would have people to help him besides just the, the the regular members of the bat family because i do i do kind of go back to this idea was played on before in the past but then also morrison brought up this you know these these batman of all nations thing in the black glove and i think one of the things is that you look at that that group in the black glove storyline they're not very reliable and uh they don't last very long either and one of the things i think that's important to bruce this time is that you know the people he's choosing he knows who they are and he knows that he can train them so they'll have the right training versus these other Batman of all nations who he didn't know where they got their training. He didn't train them. So I just, I think it's more of like him building like this little army that if needs called upon that he needs their help, that they'll be there, but they can also, you know, protect the country or whatever that they're in. Well, I, I see that, but it's like, what, how, why does he have to do that 
all across the world because he has that in Gotham. He has that with like the Bat family of Robin, uh, Dick, Backer, or he has that type of he that type of mindset. He's been doing this is not essentially something that's new. Well, it's new because it's going across the planet. My thing is though, what makes him what? I I don't know why Bruce Wayne thinks that I need to do this all across the world. I mean, I can understand if it was even in, in all of America, but across the planet, I. To train people, is he really going to train people, and for how long, and how well, how well can he know somebody in a short amount of time? That's just, I'm, I'm just questioning that, and I, and I, and I don't think that um, I've given, given, given as much incentive to think that it's that logical of an idea. But I mean, I'll, I'll still wait and see. I mean, the the thing is, I think you here's the thing: you specifically said, well, he's already got that in Gotham. He's got all these people in Gotham, but they're in Gotham. Gotham City's got enough stuff to keep them all occupied, as we all know, because they all have their own books, and they're all occupied every single time we read a story about them. I think with the events of the Omega Sanction, Final Crisis, you you wrap all that stuff into it, and then along with Dr. Hurt and his whole organization, how it's spanned across the world, I think it's more of like a... He's more going on the defensive than he is on the offensive. He's, he's, he's specifically making it so that if something like this was to happen again, he's got people all over the place that, that he trusts that can do stuff. And not necessarily people with the Justice League, because how many times have we seen the Justice League, something happen where he can't work with them? I think that's more of what it is, and more so than I, I, you know, I, I've, I just I, I don't have enough people to help me out. I think it's more of a... How far is the reach of the heroes? Right now, their reach is Gotham City. Yes, they can jump on a plane and go somewhere else, but how much quicker can they get something accomplished if they already have somebody there who you know, was trained by Bruce to do the same things? Right. Because, I mean, and Bruce knows what he has in Gotham, so he knows, and now he knows after this that he can rely on those people. And the other thing to remember, I mean... The whole thing in Final Crisis and the Black Glove, those were not attacks on Gotham. Those were attacks on Bruce himself. It was all about, you know, Darkseid using Batman as a weapon. It was all about Hurt getting to Batman, breaking down that, that psyche. That, it was all about Batman. It wasn't really about the other heroes. Sure, they were involved, but it was all about Batman. And he knows now that – I think the thing is now he needs more people to help him if that attack ever happened again because technically, I mean – R.I.P. The people that helped him, they failed. He, they did not save him. So, I mean, I think that's a that's a big thing. Not only that, but I mean, if we look back on the R.I.P. storyline, every single person who Batman had or who Bruce has in Gotham City, they were every single one of them were occupied for a good chunk of that story. Bruce was on his own. Right. I mean, and, I and there's a point where Dick Grayson, point. yeah, and there's a point where Dick Grayson's about to get lobotomized in R.I.P. So yeah. it's like you know they. <laughs> they, at some point, they could not. They could not even save him. I mean, that's so. Yeah. No, no. I, I, that's a that's a good point. I'll, I'll totally give you that. All right. So let's get into our last bit of news. On November twelfth, Comic Book Resources interviewed Chip Kidd about his upcoming project, Shazam: The Golden Age, The World's Mightiest Mortal. Now, as we know, that's nothing related to Batman, but we do know that Chip Kidd did announce pretty much a year ago that he was working on some kind of Batman comic project, and we talked to him at San Diego, and he said. Uh, he it was a miniseries, and it was a story about Batman. So the question is, a year later, where are we at? So I will read for Comic Book Resources, and Zach will read for Chip Kid. Before I let you go, I want to ask you about the Batman project you were working on with Mike Chiarello. Is that still a go? 
That is still in the works. All I can say about it is that it's going extremely slow, but it's also going extremely well. Basically, the situation is that it's taking a lot longer to draw than we had thought. Is Mark doing the drawing? No, he's not. But once it's scheduled, who's drawing it will be announced, and I'm hopeful they'll promote the hell out of it. The good and the bad news is that we literally don't have a deadline. What else I c- can I tell you about it? It's a long-form graphic novel that will be published in two parts and then published as one whole book. So it'll be 96 pages. It's going to be great. I just don't know when it will see the day- light of day. I can also say a little bit more than half of it's been drawn. I'm totally in favor of taking your time and doing it right. But I, am I frustrated? Yes. But I don't think the artist is slacking off. It's just a massive project. There is a lot of detailed architecture, and it's very, very design-oriented, which is what I thought was the best thing for me to focus on. So, entire specific buildings have to be designed from ground up because they have they are critical kind of stuff. So we'll see, but it's very much alive, and it, it was a thrill to write, and it's a thrill to see the pages come in. It's just so amazing. I've had a little bit of experience with this, with short stories with Alex Ross and Tony Millionaire, and it never ceases to amaze me. It really is like magic. God knows what it must be like to write a screenplay and then see it come to life. So far, this is as close as I've gotten, but I'm going to have total control of it. Mark has been great. He's made some editorial suggestions that were absolutely spot on that helped it. Stylistically, it's going to be very unique. Okay, so that's the end of that interview. So thank you, Chip Kid, for dodging everything <laughs> that they said. He didn't even say anything. I mean, okay, so what do we know? We know it's going to be a graphic novel that's going to be two parts and then eventually published as one book. Okay, we already knew it was going to be a two-issue miniseries, as we were told before, and we would assume that it would be published as one whole book as every other miniseries is. Um, and we know there's a lot of buildings in it. Thank you. That, that was very informative. Yeah. Um, I will say, though, that I am – I do look forward to this, whether this happens, you know, if this happens in the next five years. But – because Chip Gidd is really good at what he does. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. – he's taken some stabs at writing, and, and he's okay. I mean, but he, he's a great designer. I mean, that's what he does, and that's what he's very good at. So I think, you know, comics is a really good medium for him to be in. And so I have – I do have a lot of faith in what this project could be. But yeah, I mean, he he really says nothing here. I mean, he's just kind of using design-oriented words to really kind of uh, chalk this thing up. Chip Kidd actually came to my campus um, and spoke to the art department, but that was the year before I actually started college. I, I don't have much to add. He actually didn't really answer much of anything, but uh, I, I like Chip Kidd nonetheless. <laughs> Look at all this new security. How's a guy supposed to break out of here? Don't be a stranger. He surrendered almost without a fight. I don't like it. At least he's back where he belongs. Get up! I set a trap and you sprang it gloriously! Now let's get this party started! There's no escape, Joker. I don't want to escape. I'm having way too much fun.
Joker. Over? Why, my dear delusional dark knight. It hasn't even begun. <laughs> All right, so that is all of the news we've got. We've got a decent chunk of books to cover, uh, and like I mentioned, Josh will be joining us specifically to go over the two books that he'll be covering, as well as uh, give his reviews for all of the books that we have. So, let's get into our very first book, which is Red Hood, The Lost Days, number six. So the book starts off with... Batman having, well, basically a flashback of Batman telling Jason Todd, listen, the Joker is a nut. He literally does not care about anything. He will do things that don't make any sense. Nothing about him is logical. We then cut to a scene where the Joker is meeting up with somebody who has some kind of invention. He doesn't know what it is, but uh, when the people show up, the Joker is told that he showed up with too many men, so he kills two of his men just to make it so that the deal works. It turns out what the uh, item that these people are trying to pawn off is a liquid that when mixed with water, makes contact with the air, starts a fire. Uh, Jason Todd finds out about this and follows a number of the different henchmen to get to the Joker. Eventually, he captures the Joker and brings the Joker to a place, covers him gasoline, and tells him he's going to burn him alive, and decides that right as he's about to drop the lighter on him, he decides, nope, nope, this isn't what's going to happen. He uh, leaves and goes sees Talia and says, I couldn't do it, because when I do do it, I want to make sure that it's much different than this. I don't want just to have him die like that. She then says, okay, so what's the plan now? Are you going to kill Batman? And he goes, you know what? I I don't know. really know what I am going to solve by murdering him. Talia then proceeds to kind of talk him into saying, well, then you need to punish him because uh, he uh, crossed the line with my father, so you need to cross the line. She then makes out with him and they end up sleeping together. He wakes up in the morning, she's gone, and she finds out, and he finds out that uh, she left a number of different information about how he can have access to Wayne Tech so that he could get some of the gadgets. We then see the scene where he meets with Tommy Elliot before we even are introduced to Tommy Elliot during the uh, Hush story. We find out that how Tommy Elliot knows that Batman is in fact Bruce Wayne because Jason Todd tells him. Uh, we then see Jason Todd getting a bunch of different gadgets from Wayne Tech. That is the end of Red Hood Lost Days number six. So overall, the conclusion of this miniseries, it did a couple things. I, th- I, I like the idea that it's showed us exactly what happened from the time that he goes after the Joker. Well, not even so much the time that he goes after the Joker. It was more about, I think, I like the idea of them showing him meeting up with Tommy Elliot, him revealing to Tommy Elliot that Batman is Bruce Wayne, him getting the gadgets, him with Talia. I didn't think it was very... It didn't make a lot of sense to me how Talia ends up sleeping with him. That just didn't make a lot of sense to me. Oh. That was probably... it. Does, like, I don't, I don't remember for sure, but I don't remember there being like a timeline as far as how long it's been since he died to this issue. But he's got to be quite young. I'm just going to throw that out there because he can't be that old because Dick Grayson is probably 20 during this. And it was a good chunk of it was a little chunk of time between Dick and Jason. So well, he was um, he was he was dead for almost twenty years. If this is before yeah, Hush, then yeah. Tim is like sixteen, which means how the fuck old is, is Dick then? Uh, like 
who knows? I, like, I, right now, I don't think like Jason, like in like current continuity, is even older than like age twenty at the most. Yeah. So, in other words, so who is, for uh, him, dude? Right. So she's definitely robbing the cradle with Jason Todd. I do find that quite interesting, especially since it's only a matter of time. Oh wait, she probably at this point has already had her son with Batman. Or is it? <laughs> guess that. I guess that got left out of the the pages of uh, Red Hood. <laughs> um, but uh, overall, I gotta say the only thing that that I have a question about the Red Hood now is is uh, Jason Todd, Damien's father. Most important question. <laughs> Actually, that's a uh, legitimate question. Yeah. All right. So Red Hood lost days number six. Uh, I'm gonna give. Two out of five batterings. I'm glad we reached the end. And I honestly, I thought John, Judd Winnick wrote a really good story here. The problem is is that um, he this whole thing was to build up this, you know, Jason Todd's mythology. And, and I thought the first five issues really failed at that. And then I thought this issue actually did a good job. But as I'm thinking about it even now, this really screws up a lot of storylines. And it doesn't fit. No, That's not a thing that I usually care about, so I'm not going to really get into that. But I felt that Judd Winnick was really shooting all of his big guns in this issue, which I thought made this issue really good. But I think it would have been a better paced storyline if they would have cut this to three issues. And some of the material that was in this issue ends up you know, being paced out separately in those three issues. I just don't see why six issues was necessary. I thought Jeremy Hahn has been the one constant in this min- miniseries. I really like his artwork, and I liked his Joker. It was very traditional. The moment where Jason Todd has an opportunity to kill the Joker, I thought, really failed because, uh, first of all, I'm not a big fan of those moments where, oh, I, I can kill him now, but wait, let's make it more meaningful. That's just bull. And this miniseries, to me, was all about Jason Todd getting some kind of vengeance. And he finally has that moment to do it, and he doesn't take it because it's just not, it's just not about the Joker and Jason. It's also about Batman, and he needs to be there when it happens. And maybe that would work normally. Hey, but Judd Winnick, you forgetting that you wrote a story like five years ago and we already know what happens. So you kind of failed there. But I also thought that Winnick wrote a – I always thought – I think Winnick writes a really decent Joker and I think he writes really good dialogue with the Joker. He's kind of playful within his stories. And I don't think that style always works, but I think he gets it to fit. In regards to Jason and Talia doing the uh, dirty, I actually thought it made a lot of sense for the moment. Uh, both characters are okay. at these very vulnerable states in their lives. When you look at it, they're relate they're they're really similar. When you look at the relationship that Talia has with her father, and the re- relationship that Bruce has had, uh, Jason has had with Bruce, and Talia at the time thinking that Bruce had a big part to do with her father's death. To me, it's in her own way she's getting back at Bruce by sleeping with Jason. So I wasn't expecting it. But I thought it was actually pretty decent character development. And and one thing I got to say is uh, it does kind of cement the thoughts that she's trying to put into Jason's mind, into his mind. Yeah. The Hush plot thread, I thought made sense. It actually clears some things up with the Hush storyline that Jeff Loeb and Jim Lee wrote that I had a lot of problems with when that was coming out. So that I thought that worked. And I, I thought that that, actual, that actually happening was actually... The the best kind of thing that Winnick did here, even though Hush happens before, I, I don't, I don't even know. I, I can't even. The more I think about how poorly placed all this is, the I could really give say this issue was horrible. But uh, I liked how Jason, you know, just right there, straightforward to Hush, reveals that Batman was Bruce Wayne. He hardly even hesitates. There's one panel where he just, just stare at each other, and then it, boom, it's done. 
So I was actually impressed with this issue in compared to the the previous five, and I thought Winnick wrote a really good issue, but I just think this miniseries kind of failed as a whole. But I actually will give this issue on the on the story itself, not in where it fits into continuity. I'll give it four out of five batterings. Man, this rich this issue. There's just so many problems with it. Continuity is all over the place because you have to think that okay, for first my women, when did Death in the Maidens take place? Because if Rachel Ghoul is dead and Taya is apparently mad at Bruce, and then Hush happens, where in the story Taya was still you know trying to jump Bruce's bones. What's going on there? That, that, that's, that's the biggest thing. I almost I want to say Death in the Maidens happens either around the same time as Hush, or it happens after. Like, I feel like that was like a 2002, 2003 thing, and Hush was what, 2001, 2002? Hush, Hush was 2003. 2002, okay, 2003. So, so, so maybe Death of Maidens was around the same time. I'm not sure. I, Actually, I Death of the Maidens, I know it was 2003, but I was like, I, I don't know which story came out first. The Talia and Jason uh, Trist, as we'll say, I, I won't say I didn't see it coming because ever since Batman Annual 25, like when she kisses him first, like in that issue, I, I, I actually, especially with the fact that D- Judge Winnick wrote this thing, I, I, honestly, I honestly thought that was pretty much to be expected. I didn't like it because I thought it was a bad, char- bad characterization. I don't know what's going on with Jason Todd at this point. Like, this is the character, this is before Under the Hood. Or yeah, this is before his big resurrection story that originally came out, and he's he's like so he's like so evil in this one. Where in that one, he wasn't really good either, but he was it was a lot more focused, it was a lot more naturalistic. And this one, he's like, oh, it's not about murdering Batman anymore; it's about showing him. I, I didn't like the way it was written. I thought that if Jason Todd or okay, let's not let's pretend it wasn't Jason Todd. If from the Joker's perspective, some guy in a mask takes him, threatens beats. Three, beats him up and threatens to burn him on fire then says, actually, I'm not going to do it. I think the Joker would probably find that guy and kill him. I really do. And <laughs> the fact that it's Jason Todd, that really could have like led to some, some major ramifications. I, I don't know what I was expecting from this issue, but you can't tell me that happened and Jigger J- just forgot about it. Oh, well, that was weird. No, 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 no. That's that's dumb. I, I did like the hush scene because it uh, it made sense, even though it was, it was a bad recon about the whole Clayface thing. But that was back around the um, Gotham Knights. It wasn't really the fall of this, this miniseries. But this miniseries, God, I just I don't like the characterization of Jason Todd. Not that I think he's like the greatest guy ever, but he's just he's just too out there. And I think it's too drastic for even for somebody who went through the through the Lazarus Pit, somebody who you know who had a bad who was the bad Robin and had bad childhood and everything. This just this doesn't feel right to me. And I think that. If the point of this was to show how he got his, how he got his state of mind, it really failed because he kept on jumping from left to right. Like it wasn't like the, in the second issue he tried to kill Batman, and that was years before this issue, the sixth issue. So like like basically nothing has changed. He went from the, the the character we saw in Under the Hood to like to progressively the character we saw in Batman and Robin, like the Red Hood with with um his partner there, and then that characterization apparently preempted the Under the Hood characterization. And then those in hush, it's it's just a mess, and I and I really, I really thought this this one stumbled all over itself. So I'm giving this one out of five batterings. One little side comment too is really to me the the main two writers who have written Todd over the last few years. It's been Winnick, and then Morrison wrote him in Batman and Robin. And I prefer Morrison's characterization, not because it's Grant Morrison writing it, but because Winnick Winnick writes a very different Jason Todd in depa- in comparison to Morrison's, but. Winnick writes this character that's always about I'm going to be the Batman that Bruce can, can never be but to me then he writes these moments like 
in this issue where he has this opportunity to finally kill the Joker and he doesn't take it. So in a sense, he's really never he's never really being the Batman that Bruce can't be. So in a way, Winnick is completely contradicting his entire characterization. So that is one thing that I, I just wanted to point out. I also, also like to yeah mention the fact that if, if we're to assume that Talia is anywhere close to Bruce Wayne's age, and she, I think we mentioned this before, but like you know, she's basically shacking up with her lover's son, or like, like in, a, in a sense, it's like her stepson. So that's awful. All right, so that's going to give Red Hood Lost Days number six two and a half out of five batterings. Okay, let's go. If you can't suit up quickly at home base, I'm concerned how you would handle it in the field. Perhaps he's primping. As I recall, Master Richard spent nearly half an hour admiring his reflection the first time he donned his cape. Jason, get on out here or I'm going on patrol without you. Gotcha! Would've, if I hadn't seen you slip behind the computer banks three minutes ago. Nah, I got you. How does it feel? It feels awesome! Check me out! I'm Robin, the boy wonder! Are you kidding me? This rocks! Come on, old man. We've got bad guys who need chasing. This is the best day of my life. Let's move into our next book, which is going to be Batman, The Return of Bruce Wayne, number six. Batman, Return of Bruce Wayne, number six of six. The final issue written by Grant Morrison with artwork by Lee Garbett and Pere Perez. Okay, so this issue is very confusing. And it would take me a tremendous amount of time to give you guys a page-by-page description of everything that happened. So I'm just going to give a general synopsis of the issue. So basically the issue opens at the vanishing point where all the archivists are at. And Bruce agrees to make this deal with them. And he'll save the time stream from collapsing. Hence, if the time stream does collapse, everything would be frozen in time forever in the DC Universe is no longer really as we know it. In order to do this, he has to lose his memory again. So because of this, when Bruce reaches present day, which we saw at the end of Batman Return of Bruce Wayne number five, and this is the the Jack Kirby Batman, he comes to the JLA Tower and he recognizes the members of the JLA as his enemies. And so he he quickly starts to take them out. And at around the same time, the group of heroes that included Superman, Booster Gold, Green Lantern, the search party rescue team, they reach the vanishing point. And they are able to make it out of the time stream that is collapsing and it reaches, they reach present day to aid the rest of the JLA. Before they get back, at the tower, Bruce is taking out all these members, these kind of B-list members, I guess, in a way, pretty easily, until he's Tim Drake confronts him, who's trying to, you know, get Bruce to remember. He's trying to humanize Bruce. But it isn't until Wonder Woman uses the lasso when they all when they realize that Bruce is telling the truth, but the technology of the suit that he's wearing is kind of taking over. So Superman and that team then get back, and they are able to remove the archivist suit, the, the, the archivist that is basically using Bruce Wayne's body, and they place it into the, this time bubble machine that Superman and the others return to present day in, and inside the time bubble machine, the thing explodes. And because of that, time is breaking apart, and Bruce is having delusions, and so Superman quickly freezes him, which is, they do that to remove all the Omega radiation out of Bruce's system that he's gathered through all these different uh, periods in time that he's been walking to, and that was all part of Darkseid's major big-picture plan. This is also an attempt to bring Bruce back to life, because essentially, because of all this time and, and all this stuff, he's been dead for about two minutes. And while he's dead, he sees these these moments in time, in the time stream, and it's he, he's getting his knowledge and his memory back 
while he's being frozen, Tim appears with the cape and cowl and says, all you have to do to bring him back is tell him Gotham's in trouble and give him the cape and cowl. And after another flashback, Bruce is revived. And then we see Bruce with the suit on heading back to Gotham where he is needed. And then this is would lead right into the events of Batman and Robin number 16. So that is the end of Return of Bruce Wayne number six. All right, so Batman The Return of Bruce Wayne number six. I, uh, I, had, I There were certain points of this book that I found kind of confusing. It took me a couple pages to figure out exactly who was talking. I did see, obviously, the archivists were in the previous issues as well as the Vanishing Point miniseries that was happening as well. So it was kind of uh, something that you could have caught on to a little bit quicker. I didn't realize what was going on because it just seemed like the voices really weren't coming from anybody. And then on top of that, when Bruce Wayne was taken over by the bioorganic suit, it also was kind of discerning because he was talking, especially when he first starts talking with uh, Tim Drake, his voice is like ominescent voice. It's not coming from him, it's ominescent. But that's just, a, I guess this was a nitpick. Overall, I thought the issue was pretty good. I think they wrapped it up very neatly. They didn't really leave any open ends, and they left, they made it so it was very clean cut. The one thing that I'm not really understanding was the insider suit. Where did he get the insider suit? Because that's the only thing I haven't seen explained. Besides that, I'm going to give this one uh, three and a half out of five batterings. I think this issue was really good, and it was really trippy and confusing. And that's mostly to do with the fact that Morrison is throwing out a lot of ideas at you at once to wrap up the series. And I also think that the scheduling conflicts really took away a lot from this book with Batman and Robin getting out before this. And and my complaints about the book and the miniseries as a whole is that I think it was like a really interesting idea. But the problem is, is that none of these ideas were like ever really completely fleshed out. And all the issues had this like apocalyptic end of the world theme to them that I think exhausted the readership eventually. Now, with this issue, I it really does explain Darkseid's plan, and it really wraps up the series nicely. It just about explains everything, which is I think is really good. And for anyone wondering like what Darkseid's plan was, because it is it is really hard to kind of figure out on your own. Basically, Darkseid thinks back during Final Crisis that he will use Batman as a weapon. Send him back in time, and he'll have him gather enough Omega energy that when he arrives back to present day, the large amount of Omega energy will kill everyone on Earth. And I really like that setup. Why not, why not just kill him? If he, ki- if he kills Batman, then he's not going to kill everybody else. Okay, that's true. So I, I like that setup. And I think ultimately people like have argued, well, why didn't he, why didn't he choose Batman? Why didn't he just choose Superman? And Darkseid choosing Batman over Superman to me is, is like a compliment because what is Batman? He is a survivor. And Darkseid knew that Bruce would do whatever it took to survive. So I think you know that's, that's really interesting. The symbolism at the beginning of the issue with the pearls and the bell and the gun I thought was really interesting. And I think the thing that this miniseries has done is Morrison has broken down, broke down Batman piece by piece, meaning Morrison is showing all these different attributes that make up Bruce's character. The, another thing I really loved was how Morrison really showcases Tim's respect and recognition that he has and how he'll always believe in Bruce. I thought that was really strong writing. Lee Garbutt and Perez Perez's artwork, I think, is maybe other than Ryan Zook in the uh, detective issue, the noir 40s one, I thought was the best of the series. It was really good quality, and it fit with the story really well. And I also thought the battle sequences were really drawn out really well. And you do really get that big event sort of feel in the story, which I really liked. More Jack Kirby Batman, which I love. So overall, I thought this was a really excellent issue. So I'll give this five out of five batterings. I'm not going to pretend I know 
or fully understand all of what went on, not only with this issue, but with the miniseries. But I thought that the setup that the last issue ended with was, this was a very nice conclusion to it. The idea that Batman had to die over and over again to get back to time, that is correct, right? In a sense. Just, just uh, sure. well. Because every time, every time he, he, he traveled to time, it was like him sort of dying. Yeah, because well, essentially the idea is he gets hit with that beam and he has to live all these horrible lives out. So I though that was a thing that we were talking about in the forum. Like I assumed that he, especially in the in the noir one, he he dies. I mean, he died, and then that yeah, and then that that the spirit of Barbados carries him through the stream into the next sequence. Like that was how that's how I took it. So I I, I don't know. I mean, that is yeah. I, I think that's the idea. But I thought that that was very interesting. The begin not the not the very beginning, but like near the beginning of the issue, you see another reference to Batman Year One. Which was well, I think the last one was referenced was in Last Rites, where you see like the bat coming through the through the manor and him grabbing the the bell to call Alfred to help him help him with his wounds. I, I liked how he was using time and continuity to uh, bring this to full circle. I really liked how you saw a lot of Superman and Wonder Woman in this to help help out Batman because it feels it feels like the like the big the big three of the DC universe coming together without it being forced. I really felt like that was a very natural way to get the the big three. To help out their buddy after after the very, in my opinion, very disappointing Superman Batman issue, I thought this was a much better service to their the three's relationship. Like Zach said, I really like Tim being there because Tim, who absolutely deserves to be there, was there to help them get Bruce back to where he needed to be. I thought it was kind of funny. He says, "Oh, tell him Gotham's in trouble. Give him the costume, and he'll be on his merry way." Yeah, that 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 was probably the the best thing. Yeah, that was. <laughs> oh yes, that was awesome. Yeah, so I enjoyed what I was reading here. I didn't I didn't fully understand like the, the main overarching thing. I actually think that the next issue, Batman and Robin, I understand that a lot more. I think that I think it explains a lot more than this does. But as it stands, I mean I think this is still a very good issue. I like little bits of it. I like, there's there's a, like Pere Perez and Lee Garbit, they do they they have their own styles, but they also respect the Jack Kirby designs of the characters very well. Like that one picture of Darkseid. It's very, very well rendered. So um, this is good stuff. I- I'm going to give this a strong four out of five veterans. All right. And then on the website, Hayes Astronaut gave Batman The Return of Bruce Wayne five out of five batarangs as well. So that's going to give Batman The Return of Bruce Wayne four and a half out of five batarangs. the Justice League, there are assembled the world's four greatest heroes, created from the cosmic legends of the universe, Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman, Aquaman, Those three junior super friends, Wendy, Marvin, and Wonder Dog. Their mission, to fight injustice, to right that which is wrong, and to serve all mankind. Let's move into our next book, which we are going to throw over to Josh with Batgirl number 15. 
Batgirl. We start off with a little Gotham sequence, uh, Dustin Lenn style, which in the form of Stephanie Brown telling Proxy the origins of the whole Batman family. It's really funny, and it's uh, it's all over the internet. I suggest you all check it out. Proxy then relays the story to Oracle. And it, I guess it's for new readers or just because we're, we're starting a new run on the book with a new artist. Stephanie is in a study group with Francisco and Jordana, and Jordana's being her usual antagonist self to Stephanie, saying that Stephanie's useless. Stephanie sees another student running with a jump drive around his neck, calling for help, so she goes to help him. Oddly enough, the other study group doesn't, you know, realize that this guy's running, you know, for his life, and Jordana's like, see, Stephanie, look, the study group, she is useless. So she appears as Batgirl and fights these hooded figures who are chasing the guy, and deduces that they are all history majors because they're quoting some obscure history stuff. So then the leader orders them to silence. As the fight continues, the gray ghost appears and shoots one of the guys with a rubber bullet. Oracle appears on the comlink and is able to identify the gray ghost as Johnny C. the Mad Bomber, who, as Stephanie says, was someone from two or three adventures ago. Despite the assistance of the gray ghost, who Stephanie's like, um, get out of here before he disappears in a flash, saying that the gray ghost will always be there to help. The guy with the flash drive is murdered, and the flash drive is removed from around his neck. The next day, uh, the police department, they think it's a suicide until they find a bloody battering, which uh, does not bode well for Stephanie. I guess apparently if it's a bloody battering, they automatically think it's Batgirl, even though lots of people use those things. Or maybe Batgirl being on the scene is partially why they thought that. But regardless, Stephanie's having a talk with her mom, and her mom's like, you know what, Gotham City's had a lot of bad memories. Maybe we should leave. Stephanie is not happy to hear this because, hey, she's having a grand old time in Gotham and being Batgirl, so she convinces her mom to stay. And the bat signal is lit in the sky. Stephanie's very, very eager to answer it, despite Oracle trying to warn her, because once she gets to the roof, a bunch of cops are there ready to arrest her. To be continued. Batgirl number 15. So overall, I think this issue is pretty good. I, I, I did think the uh, Little Gotham reference in the very beginning of the issue is quite amusing. I like the Little Gotham stuff, and I think it's cool, and I think they should do more with it. And I think that was a nice inclusion of uh, an introduction to Dustin Wen's art by starting off the issue with that. I got to say, when I first saw the preview for this issue, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. They're doing the entire book in that style? Because <laughs> that's not what I expected, but I think they did a very good job with that. The cult thing seems a little... We'll have to see what happens with it, but it seems like it's going to turn into something kind of stupid. That's just what I'm getting out of it so far. Uh, the Grey Ghost appearing, that was uh, an interesting thing I never saw coming. I'm curious to know where this book's going to go with everybody, all the police going after Batgirl. And why is it that uh, nobody... You know, where, where's Gage when you need him? Where's Gordon when you need him? How come there's nobody that's uh, working for the GCPD who's like, no, we're not going to go after Batgirl. Why would she be killing somebody? That's the only thing that's kind of a plot hole that I'm obviously... I, I'm sure it'll be explained in the next issue, but that seems a little too big of a plot hole to ignore. So with this book, I'm going to give this one three out of five batterings. I think the little Gotham illustrations in the Batman history sequence was really fun and clever, and I also thought it really did a good job of transitioning to Dustin Gwynn's artwork, because readers of this title are used to Lee Garbett, who we talked about in The Return of Bruce Wayne, and Gwynn's artwork's a little different, and I had some concerns about him coming out of the book, and I thought he fit it right in with Frank Q. Miller's story, and it worked really well. I think the Batgirl title has, it's like hit a hit a wall in the last few issues, but I think this one has... It's gotten me really interested again in this book and Stephanie and the continuation of this book. 
couple things. First off, the inclusion of the Grey Ghost. Yes, this wasn't the original Grey Ghost that appeared in the animated series, and I thought it was fun little references to the show, but it was kind of a problem because the Grey Ghost exists in the Bruce Tim universe, and I like the nod, but I think it could confuse some readers, and I, I don't know that it's something that Miller really should have done, but I, but I liked it. Stephanie becoming a fugitive in the first storyline since the road home is really really fast to me, and I like that. So on one hand, I applaud him for being so quick to start a new storyline that I think is going to be like really interesting. On the other hand, how many times do we have to see every Batman family member go through a fugitive storyline? It's just not really an original idea to me, and I hope this doesn't last long because if Miller wanted to, this could be the direction of the title for the next year. But I don't expect that. One thing it will do is really build Stephanie's character even further, which I don't think we've been getting a lot of in the last few issues, excluding the Road Home one shot. So I think that could be a really positive. The one thing that I've noticed when I was reading this book is I don't necessarily care about the plots that Miller is writing because I know that they're going to be a bit quirky. And they're not going to be like, you know, the great caliber stories that I think we get used to sometimes. But I'm much more concerned with the way he writes the characters, which I think he really does a pretty good job of. I thought that that was strong again in this issue. So overall, I thought this issue read relatively quick and was fun, and I really liked the artwork. So I'll give it four out of five batterings. I agree with Zach in terms of this. The plot's not really getting me get, getting me excited, but I do like how he's written Stephanie Brown. He's man, Stephanie's been a very consistent, one of the more consistent Bad Family characters in, in a long while. I, I guess I guess it's not really that hard to get her character, but it feels like the same character that she's been since her introduction. And it's interesting, like this late in the series, to see like things moving and shaking. You know, her being a fugitive, possibly moving, and her getting new allegiances with other characters and stuff. I think that's something to take note of. The best part for me at the beginning was the little, the little Gotham thing with the very abbreviated, very kind of sarcastic and cynical look at the Batman's history. I thought it was kind of funny. Especially how Proxy and Oracle were kind of just like, like, what is this? As for the actual plot, I think it's... I'm not interested, but that doesn't mean it's not... It's it's, it's just there for me. It's it's not very uh, memorable, but it's it's something to just watch happen to, uh, you know, Stephanie Brown, to the, our protagonist. The Grey Ghost thing is kind of random. It's really blatantly obvious, if, any, if it's not to anybody, how huge of an animated series fanboy Dustin Wynn is. I don't know if that was his idea, because every time he draws Tim Drake, he draws him in the Tim Drake New, Adventures, New Batman Adventures design. So that could have been one of his ideas. It was okay, because it wasn't... It doesn't stop the story to uh, make the reference. It's just a very, not, a very slight little thing if you've, read, if you've watched the series. So that was interesting. Overall, I'll give this about three and a half out of five better ranks. It was pretty good. Um, I'm, hoping for, I'm hoping for some better, though. And Zayas on the website gave the issue four out of five better ranks, so that's going to give Batgirl number 15 four out of five better ranks.
move into our next book, which is Batman and Robin number 16. Oh, yes. Batman and Robin number 16, written by Grant Morrison. And there are three artists on this book. Cameron Stewart, Chris Burnham, and Fraser Irving. So we open during a flashback set in 1765 at Jacob Stockman's farm in the basement where there is a devil-worshipping ceremony taking place. And these white-wig men have summoned Barbados. And now along the group of people there, there are Jacob Stockman and Thomas Wayne, a.k.a. Simon Hurt. And then the human sacrifice they have selected is this woman named Dominique who will be later buried next to Bruce's parents in the Wayne family crypt. So almost all the men run out of the basement when Barbados comes, it's summoned and he arrives and they run up the, up the stairs and board and nail the exit shut, leaving Thomas Wayne and Dominique with Barbados in the basement. Thomas Wayne is trying to work out some sort of deal with Barbados for the mystery box, which we later know as the bat box that her is so precious towards. So Barbados tells Hurt to drink the cup of starry venom, which apparently means bat blood. So Dominique watches Hurt as he bites through the chest of a bat. And as Hurt turns to Dominique, he says, bathe in blood, meaning her blood. And what all this means is that in order to stay alive all these years, Hurt was probably performing these human sacrifices to Barbados, but really to Darkseid. We cut to present day where Bruce Wayne Batman was the silhouette in 15 and he came through the fireplace and he and Hurt are standing face to face now. So Hurt sends the 99 fiends after Bruce, Dick, and Damien, meaning the three have a rather brief reunion which leads Bruce to ask, is that Damien in a Robin costume? And so the three all work together to take out the 99 fiends, where at one point Damien saves Dick's life and we also get to see Damien use the bow and arrow, which we haven't seen since way back in R.I.P. And during the fight, Dick is starting to feel the effects of her shot to the head. However, the three are able to take care of business, and while they are waiting for more opponents, we learn that Hurt is the outcast of Wayne, and that for all of these years, the Black Gov operation had been using the Wayne's accident fund to fund their operation. And then... A couple more fiends show up, but quickly hit their knees laughing, which leads Dick to explain to Bruce that, oh, and the Joker, he's uh, on our side, kind of. Bruce tells Dick and Damien to save the city, Hurt is his, and Bruce then looks at Damien and tells him to save Dick. And then we see Bruce racing, racing through Wayne Manor behind the clock and down to the caves. In the caves, Hurt is taunting Bruce via walkie-talkie, but Bruce doesn't know that initially. And we hear Alfred on another one, another walkie-talkie who is in some great danger. But Alfred tells him not to come for him until he is finished with her. Now, Bruce is listening to the sound of Alfred and following that through the caves. And while he's doing this, we see Hurt pop up behind him. And as Bruce enters a, a vault, Hurt shuts the door behind him and locks Bruce in there. And then we see Bruce see the walkie-talkie on the floor. As Alfred talks, he is inside some glass caps capsule underwater and the water is beginning to rise below him and outside Hurt is feeling quite victorious and he says Batman R.I.P. and we learn that R.I.P. never meant rest in peace but rather rotten purgatory and Hurt steps into the elevator we cut to Gotham City where Professor Pig rests on some sort of float singing while the city cheers for him as he passes and the city is in chaos suddenly a voice begins to speak to Pig and Pig is shocked and begins apologizing to his mother that's the voice he thinks he's hearing and talking about how what they did to them in the hospital validates his behavior and I guess he's referring to what Hurt must have done to him when he was still Laszlo Valentin the circus boss and then quickly Damien and Dick swoop in and this really isn't explained well but Pig's Dollatrons quickly flock to Pig leaving Dick and Damien unharmed and Dick is really feeling the pain now 
but tells Damon he must reach the Underground Railroad and stop the Joker bomb. We cut to the GCPD where Gordon comes storming into the place wearing a dress explaining the situation while everyone just stares at him. In the cave, Hurt is suddenly thrown into a glass case by Batman, and Hurt tries to convince Bruce that he is his father once again, but he fails, and this sequence really shows that Hurt has lost all of his power by this point, and he knows it. But Hurt is able to escape from Batman's clutches and jumps into the water and swims off, which is very similar to the underground, underwater helicopter scenes that took place in Batman R.I.P. And Bruce leaves him to go save Alfred, who is trapped in this glass capsule. We cut to Hurt, who is climbing out of the water somewhere else in the caves, and he sees a trail of dominoes, and he just loses it. Outside, Hurt is met by the the Joker. Hurt tries to persuade the Joker to work, that they can work together to bring down Batman, but Joker doesn't bite. We see a gun sitting on the ground. The Joker says, bet you can't reach the gun before me, gambler. And as Hurt moves, he slips on a banana peel that the Joker left there during issue 15. Hurt, who is groggy, is being dragged by the Joker, and the Joker places Hurt into a casket along with a dose of Joker venom that he gives him. And Hurt is buried alive, very much like Bruce was in R.I.P. Meanwhile, we cut to Batman saving Alfred and Damien disarming the Joker bomb. We then cut back to the Joker, who seems to think he's won. He's now going to fight crime, and, you know, he's going to be he's gonna be a good guy now, because it's that's even a bigger joke when he is suddenly knocked out by Batman. So we then cut to Dick and Damien and Bruce back at the Bat Bunker, and Damien asks what is going to happen now that Bruce is back. Bruce says, Batman and Robin will never die. Get ready to meet the public. And we see Bruce holding this press conference to Gotham, explaining that all these years he has been funding the Batman operation. But tonight, Batman's fight goes global. And we see dozens of bat signals shine in the sky. And that is the end of Batman and Robin number 16. And that story will be carried over into Batman Incorporated. All right, so Batman and Robin number 16. I thought this issue was very good. I, I said for the when we reviewed Batman and Robin number 15, I didn't really like Fraser Irving's art. I will counter that with I did like his art in this issue. I thought it worked well in this issue. I don't think it was it was this I don't even think it was the same kind of art in my opinion. I did like that they used a variety of different artists to work on this issue because realistically it's clearing up a lot of different things that have happened over a number of different issues in previous stories in Batman and Robin. So the inclusion of using all the, these different artists to tell this final story was very interesting. I did think the ending, the big reveal that Batman and Robin number 16 is going to be remembered for, Bruce telling the world that he has been funding Batman all these years, is going to present something interesting. Um, the fact that Grant Morrison thinks that this is going to be a complete misdirection. Everyone is going to believe that, oh, well, why would he tell us that he's funding him if he actually is Batman? I think that's interesting. I also like that during the press conference, he did actually say that he's been using a body double, which clears up the whole Tommy Elliot is Bruce Wayne thing. Now the question is, so what's going to happen to Tommy Elliot? Because the story's still being told in Streets of Gotham. Besides that, I thought the issue was was really good. I loved the, the part where Batman went to the Batcave and he's trying to save Alfred. I thought that was really cool. I thought everything that was going on was really cool. I thought even when even Batman's even Bruce Wayne's reaction when Damien told him, Well, yeah, so the Joker's kinda working with us. I thought that was just spot on. So I've got absolutely no complaints about this issue, which is very rare, so I'm gonna give it five out of five batterings. 
Batman and Robin was nothing but spectacular. And for me, you know, that this is going to cause some controversy, but if somebody were to come to me and ask me to give them an entire run of Batman to read, and I think I would give them Grant Morrison's Batman work. What, well, not the Widening Guy? No, 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 no. That's not finished yet. When that's finished, we can have that discussion again. That That's a different yeah. argument. Uh, reading this last issue and everything, it's, it's just so rewarding. And to start talking about the artwork... It's 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 just impeccable by everybody. I think Cameron Stewart really does outdoes himself, and I think to me this is the best artwork I've ever seen him done, ever seen him do. Um, Chris Burnham, I don't think I think some people thought that Cameron Stewart and only Fraser Irving drew this, and he Chris Burnham drew about seven pages where, and he was really good. And I think a lot of people thought that whoever was drawing those seven pages was trying to draw like Frank quietly, and that's not the case because. That is kind of Chris Burnham's style. It's very similar, and it reminds you of Quietly, but that's kind of the way he draws. And I thought it was, it's it's almost nicer though than Frank Quietly. Fraser Irving, the guy, is just does some unforgettable work, and he did all as it's done in the last four issues. And I think he fit with the segments that he was doing in the book. And I think the revolving artist in this issue works because the entire title it's it's been Grant Morrison with a different artist each story arc, and all three of these artists wrote diff- drew different portions of the book, and I thought they were placed really perfectly. You have Stuart that draws this amazing fight sequence. You have Burnham do the stuff in the caves, with, and then the funny bit with Commissioner Gordon. And then you have do- Irving do the really dark and creepy sequences, and that just all worked. And they all really brought their best effort. I really like the opening sequence with the Devil Worshippers, because that's kind of Morrison paying homage to the uh, Dark Knight, Dark City story that Peter Milligan wrote back in the early 90s, which also had devil worshippers. And instead of Thomas Wayne, that was uh, Thomas Jefferson. So I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, and if you haven't read those issues, you really should try to, because that's a really, really good story that's never been collected, which is unfortunate. The fight sequence that I was talking to with Cameron Stewart is amazing. The panel structure is unbelievable. I think that the thing that was great about it is it showcases showcases Bruce and how he fights with you know more brutally with his fists, and he's got this more traditional method. And then it shows Dick fighting with sticks, and sort of that finesse style. And then you have Damien using the bow and arrow, which I thought was great, and how you know how his skills. It was just it was just great. One thing that I found really interesting is that the opening bit with Hurt and Barbados it really explains that Darkseid has behind, has been behind all of this from the beginning. The book's very symmetrical. It has all these callbacks to RIP and the thing with the money being funneled to the Wayne fortune is funny because like there's a bit in RIP where Jezebel Jet is like bragging about how the black glove has so much more powerful and they've got so much more money compared to the Waynes. Well, yeah, that's because you're stealing your money. You're getting all your money from the Waynes. You're stealing it. So Hurt's attempt to finish Batman was really like wonderfully campy. And I think it's this whole thing has kind of instilled Hurt as like one of the great Batman villains of all time. Because to me, no villain in recent years has like really been so diabolical in this master deception i just really love the idea of hurt who's like been stalking batman for all these decades i just think that's really cool the line where professor professor pig says i'm not wearing protection my darlings uh i thought was pretty funny (laughs) hurts end on on the account of a banana peel i think was really kind of terrific i know i think a lot of people saw that coming because they they make a point in 15 to show him drop the banana peel but i just thought it was really clever the Joker has just terrific moments in this issue. And I think Morrison over the last several years has really written probably the best Joker we've seen. And really, Hurt's demise, 
you know, Batman breaking him down psychologically, it's very parallel. It's like a paradox because that's what Hurt tried to do. That's what he did. And then the Bruce going public moment. I think it allows for, for some really interesting stories to be told, like what we think we're going to see in Batman Incorporated. However, I do think it does play things really close to the chest because Morrison's idea that, like, it's going to detract people, I, I don't know. That's like a big risk because... Morrison isn't writing every Batman, so not every writer is going to see it the same way that he is. So I, I don't, I don't know that I really agree with his kind of idea behind why he does it. I think if you're going to do something like that, I know this, my uh, peers don't agree with me at all. Uh, you would oh, yeah. just, you would just reveal that Bruce Wayne is Batman. Like that's what I would have done. I think mm. it would have, it would have created a whole bunch of controversy but i don't know i think it would have been really interesting but this is something you know this is big because it's something that they can't like go back on this is this is kind of instilled now i think it's taking the character in a new direction and i'm really along for that that ride ride and uh everybody knows that i'm you know kind of the grant morrison cheerleader here and that's really because i think he writes this character so well and i love that when batman shows up in this issue it is instantly bruce like you know it's him that interaction between him and her is just back to the way it was before. It's, And Bruce kind of comes back more humanized, which I think has remained somewhat consistent throughout the rest of the books, and I hope it does, uh, because now he knows he can't do this alone, and, and the global idea may be a little ridiculous for some people, but for me, my favorite Batman stories have always been like when Batman is like the James Bond of the DC Universe, the Denny O'Neill and the Adam stuff. But I'm I'm really all about this new direction. And with the things that I loved about this issue, my absolute favorite thing was the moment between Bruce and Damien. The moment where Bruce looks at Damien mm, and tells yes. him he's proud at him and that he's trust Damien. I, I honestly got goosebumps when I read that because Damien doesn't give him any lip back. He looks back at him and that ego is gone and he just he just says, Sir and it's like and in a way it's Bruce it's like kind of like this moment where Bruce is making sure that Damien doesn't go through the rest of his life without a father like Bruce did. And it was just this moment that I've wanted to see for so long because really since Damien has become a prominent character, Bruce has been gone. And the other thing that you have to remember is Damien gave up a lot. I mean, he chose his father over his mother. And Bruce was, Bruce was not even around when he did that. So I think that says a lot about Damien's character. And I think Damien really has evolved a lot in Batman and Robin and that's really kind of one of the big reasons why I love this book so much because Dick being Batman has really allowed us to explore that relationship between him and Damien and to me Batman and Robin at the end of the day with all these crazy concepts and things going on it's really just a character driven book and it shows how strong these characters are and it's kind of a bittersweet thing for me because I'm really going to miss Grant Morrison a lot on this book because I've loved the way he's written these characters so much. But this issue for me is impeccable. It's it's like a it's a modern masterpiece of comics. <laughs> so I'm gonna give this eleven and a half out of five batteries. <laughs> I'm gonna give it five out of five batterings. Oh, I'm not sure how I'll be able to follow that, but um no, no, this is awesome. This is like one of the biggest this is like one of the best like ends of a of a series of stories I have read and I can't I can't remember the last time I've I've read such a thing. Like this is seriously seriously really really good. I I'm so speechless after that whole epiphany that um or the whole thing that, that Zach did. But uh honestly I, every time I read this, I've I've read this a couple of times now and I'm trying to think. I was reading to see if there was anything that was keeping me from giving this a perfect score and I can't think of any. Like the fight scenes are great. <clears throat> I liked how um like Zach said the artists were split up for their different um 
for their different styles and for their for their the different ways they play the action and tell the story. I love how there's that one shot that Cameron Stewart art of Batman, Dick, and Damien. Batman has his cape over Dick has the screamer sticks and Damien has the the um, bow and arrow. And that I think that should be a poster. I think that's really awesome art. I think that's very indicative of the characters and indicative over where the stories come from in such a long space of time. There were a, a ton of moments I love from the story. I probably shouldn't go over all of them just to take t- get more time. I love the part where Bruce looks at the, his burnt porch of his parents and then talks to, addresses Damien. That was good stuff. I love this, the entire scene with him in the Batcave. This, this, is, this is what I love. I love the fact that we have a, uh, a 2010 Batman story with in continuity with Batman chasing Dr. Hurt in the Batcave trying to save Alfred and, 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 it, and the fight climaxes with Batman shoving Hurt's face through a glass mirror. When I, when I read that, I was like, Okay, this is awesome. There are so many interpretations of Batman, but that is Batman to me. And he says, you know, you think it wouldn't chase you down if if, um, if I ever saw your face again? Like, and all the craziness that happens with that, the Joker, Professor Pig. It's a wonderful conglomeration of, like, the past year of Batman stories. Not just R.I.P. in the Black Elf, whole Morrison run, but, like, the past Batman and Robin here, because obviously it's Batman and Robin the title. And I felt that this was, like, this could not be any better, in my opinion. Like, the art was excellent. The storytelling was excellent. Every loose end was tied up. And like I said back in the Return of Bruce Wayne 6 recap review i think this explains everything else i i don't feel lost when i'm reading this i feel like i get everything i i couldn't ask for more really the end with where bruce says that he's been funding batman it's interesting because morrison we we said earlier that morrison thinks that that's the perfect way that batman can bruce can put himself aside from batman and not be suspicious by saying i've just been funding this this all, all these years but that would lead to the question wouldn't that nullify any charity work he's done with the wayne foundation wouldn't that put his adoptions into question? Like maybe says, oh, well, obviously you're picking up orphans for Batman to have Robin. That leads into some questions. So that is a kind of a, of a bug. Like I wish that it was a little more explained than that. But there's so much good that I love from this issue that I can't help but give it five out of five batterings. All right. So that's going to give Batman and Robin number 16, five out of five batterings. It's the first time we've had a perfect score in a long, long time. Do you want to know why I use a knife? Guns are too quick. You can't savor all the little emotions. And you see, in their last moments, people show you who they really are. So in a way, I knew your friends better than you ever did. Would you like to know which of them were cowards? He's got some kind of a contusion. I know you're going to enjoy this. I'm going to have to try and enjoy it even more. All right, so let's get into our next book, Batman Confidential number 50. This book is written by Mark Guggenheim, art by Jerry Binghead. So this story is essentially um, two stories in one. Batman is fighting against a villain who is like basically sucking the life out of, out of uh, females. Uh, at the same time, he's having a flashback sequence that's coexisting in the entire story of when he was training, coming across somebody who was sucking water from the earth. 
there's a fight sequence where Batman is going against a number of henchmen, and at the same time he's having a flashback of when he was training how he wasn't prepared and he was getting the crap beat out of him by these two guards. And at one point, uh, we flash back to when Batman is fighting these henchmen, and he tells, and the henchman tells him who he's working for. At that point, Batman knows that he has to go see this person. And at the end of the book, he realizes he has to go see this guy in the flashback. He goes and sees him at the same time in the present time the villain that shows up which could his name could be Fortas it could be something completely different I guess we'll find out in the future um, they both the flashback and the present time have a sequence where we see Bruce standing in front of the villain realizing he has to do something now the second half of this book I'm not even going to bother reviewing because it was actually quite annoying for some reason the cover of Batman Confidential number 50 said that as a backup story in Batman Confidential, there was a, sil a lost Silver Age comic that was in the back of the book. Now, you had to pay an extra $2 for this extra story, and it was not a Batman story. It was a Justice League of America story, and Batman's not even in it. So I don't even understand why that's in there, so I'm going to end the review there. Alright, Batman Confidential number 50. I thought the story was interesting. I don't know where it's going. Kind of actually concerned about where it's going because I don't personally know who this villain is and I don't know who the villain in his flashback is either. That says one of two things. One, they created a new villain for some reason because, you know, Batman doesn't have enough villains as it is. Or two, it's a villain, a very obscure villain, which, if that's the case, I applaud them, but I'm assuming that's not the case. The other thing is the art, I think, was really good. The present time art was just your general art, but the flashback art I found really well. I believe it was watercolors that they used to do that, and I gotta say, it looked amazing. Um, I've got no complaints about that at all. I, if somebody in the future did a comic that was like that, in that style, I'd, I'd, I'd give it an applause, despite the fact that the story could be crap. Now, this backup in the back, this is where I've got a problem. What? First of all, Batman Confidential, It's it's like a fourth string book. It's not a second string. It's not a third string. It's like a fourth string book. Why does it need a backup story? Is it because the, it's the 50th issue? Okay, it's the 50th issue. Let's celebrate. Let's make an oversized issue. Fine. But why do we have why do we have a Justice League story in the back of a Batman book? Isn't it bad enough that Superman Batman, about 95% of the time, is focusing on Superman Superman's world, and Batman's just like a side character that's just in the book? I find this really annoying because it's not even Justice League of America with Batman. Batman's not even in the backup story. So what was the point of having this and charging people an extra two bucks for the story? To be completely honest, even though I didn't review, I didn't actually recap what happened, it really wasn't that great to begin with. It does work for being a Silver Age story, but it's not that great. I don't understand what who, I want to know whose idea this was of including this story in the back of this book. And whose great idea it was on the editorial staff to say, yes, let's take Batman Confidential because it's the 50th issue and give it this backup story that has, doesn't have Batman in it. And on top of that, let's charge people an extra $2 for it. I'm going to give this book 1 out of 5 Batarangs, and the only reason I'm not giving it 0 is because I really like that watercolor art. First off, the highlight for me was getting to see Jerry Bingham draw Batman again, who is most famous for drawing Son of the Demon. And I think the last time we saw him was like almost, I want to say almost 
early 90s, and I, I really just think he draws a very classic interpretation, and it was also great to see him draw the other heroes like Green Lantern and, and Green Arrow and so on. And I really liked the change in styles throughout the book. I did think the uh, watercolor art was really, really neat, too. As for the story, Guggenheim, for some reason I remember him saying that this was going to be a story about Batman's beginnings with the Justice League. Am I right? Isn't that what he... Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he did. That's why we had Justice League on the first couple pages. Right. So, I'm kind of confused what this has to do with the Justice League, which we'll learn eventually. But I do think it's... The artwork fits the story. It's kind of... The artwork is kind of old school, and the story is kind of old school. However, I found myself much more interested in the watercolored flashback story that was kind of like Indiana Jones-esque... To be far more intriguing than the actual Batman story, I'm really confused by what that story even was and what the heroes at the beginning have anything to do. I don't even know what was happening. And I'm guessing that the, you know, as the arc goes on, because I believe this is a four-issue arc, that that stuff will work out over the course. But I thought it read really fast. I'm interested in this, but I was not pressed. So I'll give this uh, three out of five batterings. Real quick, the other thing to mention is I don't think that this actually was a lost story. I don't. Think no, it, 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 it clearly wasn't. Like the, the art, they were going for that kind of old school art, but the inking shows it wasn't. Yeah, it had to be the same people working on. I'm it's, I'm a little interested that it starts off with the identity crisis flashback, and it seems like Zatanna flashed Bruce back to like this the events of this issue, or either he's hallucinating it, which I find interesting. I, I like the I kind of like this art. I think that Jerry Bingham's work on Silent Demon was a lot better than this. But you know, obviously, you know, people get older, so their styles change. And it was still a very decent art. I like the wa- the watercolor art was very very gorgeous to look at. I thought Batman's character was in question. I don't like when people give Bat. This is a personal thing. I don't like when people give Batman a monologue, inner monologue, where he kind of like judges the villains and says, you know, oh, they're just thugs, but I'm Batman. Hoo ha. I think I, I don't think he really operates on that level. The 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 story is interesting. It's an, it's a mystery and it's a decent setup. I'm giving it straight three out of five batterings. Batman Confidential number fifty gets three out of five batterings. Stop. Living in the shadow of the big bad bat, you don't need him. You're the star. I can see it now. Your own big, bright signal in the sky. Let me guide you. Let me kiss you. Stop! Don't kiss her. The victim at the airport. Toxins introduced through the mouth. What are you talking about? Why do you think she's so desperate to kiss us? I'm betting her lips are poisoned. Poison kiss? You got some real issues with women, you know that? You just couldn't stand it. She was going to kiss me and not you. Couldn't stand it. Something was going to be mine and not yours, could you? Red Robin number 17, written by Fabian, art by Marcus Toe, inked by Ray McCarthy. This issue starts off in Hong Kong, where a couple is about to be robbed by a man with a gun, but the person who saves them is not Batman nor Red Robin. It's, in fact, Cassandra Kane. Yes, Cassandra Kane in a mask and costume get-up takes out the robber, but as she goes into the alley, she is accosted by Tim Drake, a.k.a. Red Robin. The two swing along, and while she makes her comments on Tim Drake's new Wayne Foundation operation, he's going back in Gotham. Tim tells her that, you know, Bruce is back in the situation and Gotham's more settled, so he gives her back her Batgirl costume and tells her that she's welcome to come back if she, whenever she wants. 
Cassandra keeps the costume, but says she acknowledges the fact that she has family in Gotham, but family is not always home. She's good doing her own thing as of right now. Tim says, fair enough. So he goes back into Gotham and gets back to his hit list. He goes down to the to the theater outside of Crime Alley where Bruce's family went the night they were murdered. He, he, he sees that as a viable option to start living. He also has lunch with his old friend Ives, and Ives pretty much is playing catch-up. He's telling Tim about his cancer being in remission and asks Tim about Tam. Tim goes down to the hospital and checks in on Lonnie Macon and asks him to be his own personal money spider. And the story is not exactly clear, but it may be under the assumption that while Lonnie Macon doesn't know who Red Robin is, Tim gives on the impression that he is Red Robin, the way he's communicating with him. I'm not exactly sure on that. Tim goes back to the Bat Bunker and decides to, with Alfred to break out Lynx. He also he also met with Cassandra just as she was doing some reconnaissance work for to see if Lynx was a dirty cop or an undercover cop. He breaks her out of the paddy wagon, and while he unhooks her, her handcuffs and everything, she pretty much comes on to him very, very strongly, and they, they share a full-page splash kiss. Tim, in his inner manga, says this is a stupid idea, but he's, he's, he's getting his priorities mixed up. Lynx puts on the Lynx mask, and Tim asks, are you really a cop? And she does not answer. She flies into the night. Before Tim can think on that too much, he is set upon by Batman, Bruce Wayne Batman. They make some small talk before Batman says, you know, in all the confusion, we never got one thing out of the way, and they share a full-page splash, not kiss, but they do hug, as, as the father and son they have been. The issue ends with Batman and Red Robin swinging tonight, and Tim crossing off another thing on his hit list. Number four, figure out who to do it with. And that was the end of Red Robin number 17. All right, Red Robin number 17. I, I really enjoyed this issue. I thought the Cassandra Kane seemed like it was... Don't do this to me. I'm going to do it. <laughs> the Cassandra Kane thing to me seems like it was just kind of thrown in. It doesn't seem like it really served a big purpose other than the brief mention that we got during the Road Home one-shots about, oh, well, Tim's known all along where, where Cassandra Kane's been, and he's been talking to her. And this was kind of, oh, okay, so let's take the first issue that after that and let's talk about, let's have Red Robin talk to Cassandra. I mean, I guess it cleared up you know, where she's been, what she's been doing, stuff like that. But at the same time, it just seemed like it was very misplaced. Um, other than he went there to find out about this chick that he's going to break out of jail, who, as we know, will probably end up becoming his uh, Catwoman. I thought they did a real good job. Again, Fabian is very good about bringing all these different elements from uh, Tim's past back into the book. Because that's what Fabian, Fabian does. He he doesn't leave, he tries to incorporate things that he's mentioned in the past in the future, and that's what gives Red Robin and previously Robin good continuity throughout the book. Uh, so no complaints at all, four out of five batterings. I really think Marcus Toe is the most underrated artist on the Bat books this year. I mean, he's just very consistent, and his artwork is very energetic, and the coloring on his work is, is usually really good. And oh, yeah. just, and that's despite the flaws that he sometimes draws. Draws Tim in and out of the costume a little strange sometimes, but he really nails the style and the tone of the book, and I really enjoy looking at his artwork. In regards to Cassandra showing up, I think it was a good move by DC, and I think Fabian dealt with it in the best way possible. I know there are fans out there that are upset saying, well, she only showed up in three panels. Might as well not even have brought her back. Well, I truly believe the only reason why Cassandra is being brought back by DC is because the fans wanted it. So they're fulfilling their requests, and it's it's something. It's better than nothing. And we know she's back. She's no, We know she's there now. So if some writer wants to bring her into the fold in the future, they can. And they don't have to deal with the whole thing of her return. So I thought it was dealt with pretty appropriately. And I thought Fabian actually did a good job of fitting it into the story. He got it kind of right out of the way. The moment between Lynx and Tim. So is Lynx going to be taking Tim's V-card from... What did I just say? No, no. That's, that's, like, didn't they say that? Like, they say, oh... 
Tim no, loses yeah, but I didn't word it right. I said something about Lynx <laughs> taking Tim in the V card to McDonald's or something. I don't know <laughs> is Lynx going to be taking the V card from Tim? Because this is the first time that it seemed Tim actually wanted it, and I'm kind of glad that they're they're finally starting to deal with that now. The interaction. <laughs> between Tim and Bruce, I was really glad to see them hug because Tim is really the closest thing that Bruce has had to his son. Even Damien being his biological son, Tim is the most, is so much like Bruce. I think the hug um, and them going out together at the end really represents that Tim will always be Bruce's Robin. That Tim, Bruce and Tim have worked together so well that that will never change. You know, it's it's always going to be Batman and Robin, Bruce and Tim. Like Batgirl, I think Red Robin kind of hit a wall a little bit there, and I, I think this issue got really things back on track. The only question I have is he marks off to figure out how to do it with. I'm left with a question. Is he going to do it with Lynx or are you going to do it with Bruce? I was because, afraid to say that. Yeah, because I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not quite sure at this point. You know, he, he was really digging that hug from Bruce, so I don't know. But I'll give this five out of five bad rings. I love this issue. It's not just because it had Cassandra Cain right at the very front. But I'll talk about that now. I think this is like th- even better than the uh, Road Home Batgirl one shot where Bruce kind of said, oh, actually, Cassandra's been in my employee the entire time. I said, I said on that when we covered that issue that as cheap as that was, it, it, it worked for me. And But this really like it feels that DC kind of gets it on one hand because I I can totally buy Cassandra Kane doing her own thing. I have opinions on uh, her and, and her Batgirl identity. I personally don't think that there's anything stopping her from being Batgirl just because Stephanie Brown is Batgirl because hey we have two Batmans. But at the same time, Cassandra Kane isn't really defined by her Batgirl identity. I think she's defined by the fact that she's Cassandra Kane. So I thought that this the, the beginning scene with her and Tim was very well written and I thought that it, it seemed very natural. I also love the fact that we see her in Red Robin because she has a relationship with Batman and a relationship with Dick Grayson and a relationship with Oracle. But Tim, I think, even like they, they had a relationship, a series of relationships where they started out kind of, Tim was a little uneasy of her. And then he grew to be pretty amiable with her and they became pretty good friends. They were hopping around each other's titles a little bit a few years ago. So I thought that the continuity was very well done here. I, I, Fabian, this is what makes Fabian one of the absolute best bat writers of today because it all feels like it's in the same history. So nothing but love for the Cassandra scene. The artwork was excellent. Like I agree, Marcus Toe is a fantastic artist for this issue. Guy Major's colors are wonderful to look at, and it's just a wonderful marriage of just art and storytelling all over the place. I love seeing Ives. That's a great callback to the old Robin issues, especially the latter half of Fabian's run. This issue, I don't want to say nothing actually happens because things are happening. He out links, but it, it doesn't feel as written for the trade as other comic books can be. I feel, this this issue felt like an old old school comic book in all, in all, in all the best ways. Uh, the only thing I kind of question, and it's not really a nitpick, but I kind of question Red Robin kind of just getting a little all that that close with links out of nowhere. I remember when she was first introduced, this version of links, and all of a sudden she kind of you know shows her appreciation by kissing him, and I, I just question why he was so readily accepting for that of that. That just seemed a little weird to me. So I hope they explain that. Finally, the scene with, with Bruce and Tim. Yeah, I agree with Zach again. Like, this is my my personal favorite dynamic duo team. And I think it is in character of, of Bruce, regardless of Final Crisis and Return. I think he would have done this before because after Tim was adopted by Bruce and he changed his costume, they had a more father-son relationship than they had before prior to that. So I think that it was just natural of the characters, not exactly the previous situations that had gone through the characters. But uh, it was a wonderful issue. So I'm giving this five out of five veterans. 
And on the website, Suave Star gave it three and a half out of five batterings. It's going to give Red Robin number 17 four and a half out of five batterings. I couldn't save her, Alfred. I don't think she wanted to be saved, sir. Vengeance blackens the soul, Bruce. I always feared you would become that which you fought against. You walk the edge of that abyss every night. But you haven't fallen in, and I thank heaven for that. Night and Squire number two of six, written by Paul Cornell, with artwork by Jimmy Broxton. The issue opens in the quiet town of Wardenshire, where we see an altercation with a store owner and a supervillain who is looking for the location of Night and Squire. And we see Burl, a.k.a. Squire in her civilian clothes, in the store listening to the entire argument. When Burl get, returns home, she gets a call from Cyril, and she quickly changes into the Squire costume and meets Knight down in their version of the Batcave or their headquarters. They quickly hop onto their motorcycles and are off to Somerset, where some occult thefts have been occurring. We speed up to 9.10 p.m., where we see Burl and Cyril back in their civilian clothes drinking at the Wicker Man bar. In the bar, the name Morris is mentioned, which causes an argument when Burl and Cyril exit the place, they are met by the Morris men, and Cyril and Burl make quick work of them, sending them staggering off. There's this older gentleman named Elijah who brought up the name Morris at the pub, and he was attacked, which led to the altercation, and he is dying, and as he's dying, we learn that he was a former member of the Morris men, and we learn kind of their history and how they've kind of faded as time has progressed. So the Morris men were hired assassins, but they've reverted to stealing these secretive items. So Knight and Squire head to the legendary Stonehenge to stop the Morris men where they're having some sort of ritual. The Morris men's whole motive is very political and they're using these items to go back in time, a time without homosexuality and diverse uh, ethnicities. So when the Morris men have, when this is when they had more power. So their attempt to alter time fails, and Knight and Squire, along with the task force, begin to reprimand the Morris men. However, their leader, Morris Major, is able to escape Catcher through some magical forces, and that is generally the end of the issue. See you next month. All right, so Knight and Squire number two. Again, I thought this issue was pretty good. I don't think it was as good as the first one, but I think that was more because the first one was more of a setup for their universe. This one was, it just seemed like it was a, this is what Knight and Squire do day to day. British isms, as I will call them, uh, are very prominent. Again, but I don't think they were as prominent as the first one. It just, the Castle Quarterly... That's probably the most amusing thing I've seen in a little while. So I'm going to give this one three out of five batterings. Yeah, this was another really fun issue. And the thing that I'm really loving about this series is its charm. The thing I really like about it is how laid back all the heroes and the villains are. And it's just really amusing to me. However, I will say that while I was enamored with the first issue, I was not enamored with this issue. I thought the plot was kind of strange, and I'm still a little confused by what I read, but uh, I did like that they stopped these guys at Stonehenge. I thought that was very uh, cliche, but clever. I think for somebody to like this book, it really depends on whether you like these characters. So I think some people don't are not very fond of Night and Squire, but I like them a lot. I do think one problem with this miniseries, this one-off stories, the format they're following, is Cornell is... is I saw this with this issue, so I don't know if this is going to happen in the next... He's trying to cram a lot into each issue, which I think causes some confusion. It's not a big deal, but that's just something I noticed. Jimmy Broxton, absolutely terrific again. 
does an excellent job of drawing a lot of characters on one page. And I think the style really complements Cornell's story really well. So I think the artwork's really strong. I think Cornell's story is a bit off in comparison to issue one, but I still really liked it. And I think it stands up pretty well on its own. So four out of five batterings. I think the casuality of the issues would really uh, I take away from it. I, I thought it was really I thought the, the opening few pages was really funny, especially the fact that Barrow was like right next to the guy as he's like demanding to know where Knight and Squire are. And I, I also like the fact that she goes into to her house and there's a lot of Britishisms in there, like like Ron calls her a ducky and stuff. And then she says, you know, duty calls Harry Barrow, we're needed. So she goes in the room goes in the closet and just comes out in her costume, walks out of her house, and then, like, her mom is like, have fun. And then, and then like, and then the neighbors are cheering her on. I love the fact that, like, it's a bit, it's, the superhero life is a very different culture in a different country. And that was really cool. I thought that was, I thought it was good stuff. But I, I thought it was interesting. I like this, I like the fight scene when they were in their civilian identities in the middle, of the, in the, outside the pub. Um, I actually kind of like this issue a lot more than the uh, previous issue because I felt that was um, a little confusing. So I thought this this was pretty straightforward and pretty nice for just a, a miniseries issue, just showing their adventures. So I'll give this four and a half out of five batterings. All right, and Suave Star on the website gave this one two out of five batterings. So it's going to give Night and Square number two, three and a half out of five batterings. <laughs> Assessing the devastation. Upstanding mayor stuff. You're not the mayor. Things change. What do you want? Ah, the direct approach. I admire that in a man with a mask. That'll bring us into our next book, Birds of Prey, number six. We're going to throw it over to Josh. And- Birds of Prey. Lady Blackhawk and Huntress are in Bangkok to go rescue Black Canary from White Canary. But when they get there, it turns out she doesn't need much rescuing. Like, Black Canary opposes them in the streets, and it looks like there's about to be a fight, but the civilians are not all about that, so they hail a cab instead. Black Canary informs them that they are her prisoners temporarily until everything's resolved. She explains to them that Lady Shiva has captured Sin her foster daughter, and her former foster daughter, rather, and her foster family, and they're going to die unless uh, Black Canary issues a fight to the death challenge with Lady Shiva. Uh, this is the challenge that's supposed to be, like, formally issued during a formal dinner that they all go to, you know, all weird customs, and Huntress is supposed to issue the challenge on behalf of Black Canary. Huntress is not all about sending Black Canary to her death, so she issues the challenge to Shiva instead for herself and kind of flips out, and White Canary's like, you know what? That's acceptable. I'll allow it. Black Canary's like, what? No, you can't do this. But one of uh, White Canary's minions calms her down and says, I know where Sin is. Let's just go get her while this is going on. So Sin is rescued while Huntress is getting her butt handed to her by Lady Shiva. But miraculously, Huntress is able to stay on her feet and even throws a pool of her own blood at Shiva. So when it's announced that Sin is safe, 
the girls just say, you know what, the fight is over. But she was like, wait, but this was supposed to be a fight to the death. And then they say, aha, but if you read the fine print, the fight to the death, you know, can be finished 40 years from now or 50 years from now. And she was like, you know what? Yeah, I agree with this. So White Canary walks off and is like, curses, foiled again. We get um, a two-page interlude somewhere in the middle of all this where Hawk is in the hospital room. He wakes up, takes off his hospital gown, Duff looks away disgusted, and he's like, I need to go back to action. And Duff is like, no, you must rest. And an Oracle comes on the computer screen and says, yeah, you kind of do need to rest. And he's like, all right. Oracle back at Cord Tower tells Greel and Savant that she doesn't really trust him. So that's the end of Birds of Prey. Alright, so Birds of Prey number six. I thought this issue was kind of interesting. I thought the whole White Canary is forcing Black Canary into this fight was kind of interesting. What was really weird is you would think White Canary would want it to be an honest fight. And the fact that Black Canary has, you know, the hurt arm doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I did think it was interesting that Huntress decided to stand up despite the fact that Huntress, on a normal day, would never be able to stand up to Lady Sheba. That just would never happen. The one thing that I'm really wondering is... What is the point of Hawk and Dove being in this book? They're constantly like doing these like side adventures that have nothing to do with the actual birds. This time they're in a hospital. Um, okay. I just, I, I don't understand what the point of having those characters. New to characters I'm, The other characters I'm kind of getting tired of is uh, the Sa- Savant and Creed. I, I don't understand why they're around either. Get this this book seems to be like growing the number of characters that are inside the book and that can be a good thing but in this case it seems like it's a bad thing because you have these side characters that aren't really contributing a decent you know really anything to the main story and because of that what are they there other than just to make an appearance to me that's kind of annoying but i did think the issue was good despite the things that i just mentioned so i'm going to give it three and a half out of five batterings i thought this was atrocious and that's not a joke that's serious. But it is uh, funny. Let me just say that I think of all the titles um, that took a month break and had their Road Home one-shot, Birds of Prey was hurt the most by that. Because in my opinion, right now, Birds of Prey is a title that I just don't think should be ending with, uh, like, I guess, cliffhangers. Because I don't even – I mean, I don't even remember what happened in issue five. I absolutely have no rec- Recollection. recollection. To me, the, the book hasn't been consistent enough to this point. It hasn't been consistent enough for me to really remember the important points in these stories. I've read other things that Gail Simone has written and is writing, and this, is to me, comes off really subpar and really flat. And part of that is because I, I haven't been intrigued by this title since its return, and I, I really wasn't that into it when it was in its prime. I've, it's the only book I find myself skim-reading, ignoring word balloons and things like that. I, I, I just don't care that much i think the artwork is pretty good and is pretty good at doing what it's supposed to be doing wink wink uh the artists know how to draw women so i'm gonna say the shiva thing was uh was, it was a uh, joke it was an absolute joke yeah it was it was a joke it was absolutely effortless but there's this bit of dialogue during it where she says how'd you like a drink drippy pants and I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I love cheesecake. I mean, I really love cheesecake in any medium. I could eat cheesecake all day. Um, but that <laughs> is just terrible. Well, yeah. Imagine Bat fans, Zach, eating cheesecake all day. Anyway. <laughs> but that, awesome. that's, that's just terrible. And, and it's even more terrible because I know Gail Simone writes better. than I could have been on Quaaludes and this book would not have been any better so I'm going to give this half a battering out of five. Before I Google what a quail is. Uh, it's, 
I, I, I was very down on this issue, too. I thought this issue stank. And it's a shame because, you know, I never really read the Birds of Prey uh, series, but I've wanted to. And I have read, a, I, I read uh, some of Gail Simone's Wonder Woman stuff. She's an excellent writer. I, I don't think, I don't really want to blame it on her, but, I mean, who else do you blame when they write something like this? I, there's, there's just some things, there's just things here and there that kind of cascade by the end of the issue. I've never really liked the Huntress character. I, 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 she's she's always been very annoying and witchy, I'll say. And there's nothing I don't find anything really endearing to her. So her challenging Shiva was like my, my, the only thing I could think of for like for like a, a, an extended period of time was I can't wait to get this, to see this woman get beat on because she had it coming. She really did. And like the whole when she when she like throws blood in her face and says, "Oh well, you fought uh, Super Fighter, big shots. I had older brothers." Come on, are you serious? Please, no, um, no. There's another thing too because when they have this scene with Hawk and Dove, and uh, Hawk is in the hospital, then he gets up, he says, "Grab your clothes," and he's naked, and and Dove is like, "Hoo hoo." Gail Simone does know that these two were romantically evolved back in the '90s, right? They were like they were like it's not like they don't know who these others are. So I'm kind of I, mean, I guess they're not in a relationship now, but I kind of find that a lot how she's acting so childish over that. The artwork was very distracting. It wasn't bad, but it was so super cheesecake. The women had like ten foot long legs with butts that just just were just like you know ridiculously shaped butts, and the people's mouths were all drawn in a way that was just like I, I just found, I found the art distracting. It wasn't bad, but at the same time, the storytelling was bad because the art was distracting. You know, I, I, would, I, would, I, would, I like this book a lot more if, if, if more of the issue was Shiva pounding on Huntress. But as it stands, this is a very, very annoying comic book. At least this, this issue is. I'm giving this one out of five batterings. All right. And Zayas on the website gave it three and a half out of five batterings. So that is going to give it two out of five batterings. Check out that utility belt. Sure can make a girl's heart melt. He's always right there for the save. I'd like to see his secret cave. Well, Batman does things in his special way. He do it better with the birds of prey. Well, Batman always seems to save the day. No one does it better. No one does it better than the birds of prey. Moving to our last book, which is a one-shot, Batman, Catwoman, Follow the Money. Yes, written and illustrated and covered by Howard Chaikin. This issue yes, starts please. off with Batman on top of a penthouse fighting the Cavalier. Mortimer, Mortimer Blake, a.k.a. the Cavalier, has an electrified sword. Batman pulls out a sword out of nowhere, literally, and takes him on. And while that is going on, uh, he, he manages to escape through the use of explosions. We cut immediately to the news that there's been embezzlement in Wayne Enterprises, and Bruce Wayne has to put up with a lot of, a lot of public grief. There's a lot of loss of jobs, and there's a lot of rumoring around with, with how Wayne is handling his, his company. We then see Catwoman, a.k.a. Selena Kyle, run through the streets of Gotham, no pun intended, into an alley, and meets up with Mortimer Blake, a.k.a. the Cavalier, and the two start fighting out of nowhere. It's not really understood why. Cavalier then again escapes, which and then we cut into the three main embezzlers that are behind the big controversy at Wayne Enterprises. We meet one that's named Lois Westlake, who is on an airport to Spring slash Burnley, which is an end joke. We meet another at the harbor named Carl Block, and we meet a third named... Peter Leonard. We cut back to people's different interpretations of the whole Wayne scandal with uh, Alfred, 
Leonard and Catwoman. Catwoman, and, uh, I should say, Selena and Bruce are then seen at an opera watching it as, uh, until out of nowhere the Cavalier comes and kidnaps one of the main singers. Batman and Catwoman arrive on the scene, save the singer, and decide to team up to figure out what's going on with the way embezzlement. Catwoman suggests larceny, and Bruce says, I can't do that because that's against the law. And Catwoman says, loosen up, because you're too, you're too much of a straight in the arrow. Bruce and Selina then decide to go on go overseas on a road trip and pick up who they fe- rightly su- suspect is behind the embezzlement. They find Lois Westlake at Chicago, Carl Block at Montreal, and before the, before they can go after Peter Leonard, he makes it out of the country, and is revealed to be in league. I, yeah, actually, it's, it's backwards meant to be told to be he's, he's in league with the Cavalier. Batman and Catwoman decide to set the Cavalier up for a break-in, which he did not do, and while Catwoman is saying, why spend the trouble doing this, and he actually didn't do it, Batman says, well, actually, he's done so many crimes that it's, it, it all adds up. He, he, he should go to jail anyway. Bruce then has a, a, a press conference where he says that the, embezzle, the embezzlers have been caught and that Bruce, uh, that the, the company will soon be back on track. Bruce and Selena then have another argument about whether the, settling up the Cavalier behind the thefts at Wayne Enterprises was right. Bruce says it was and doesn't really care about that too much. But then Selena sighs, you know, what happened to scaring, uh, striking fear to the hearts of criminals? All you're doing is spending time putting fear to a superstitious cowardly lot. What about the criminals? Batman says, you know what? I think you're right. So he travels to Panchia, meets P. Leonard, and scares the living daylights out of him to go back into Gotham and confess. On the streets, Batman also finds the Cavalier, beats the living daylights out of him, and puts him in jail. Batman and Catwoman then ride on the Batmobile, and Batman says, can I drop you somewhere, or would you rather go find a crime in progress and test my moral compass? And that is how that one shot ends. Alright, so Batman and Catwoman follow the money. I thought... The art was pretty good. I don't really understand. See, the thing is, we know a little back history about this issue. We know that it was originally written as two separate issues, and they basically rolled it all together and made it into a one-shot. I don't know that that was a wise decision. I I don't know the differences that would have been made between the two, um, whether it had been a one-shot or whether it had been a miniseries or a story arc. But I think this issue... This, this one-shot would have been better served as a two-issue story arc inside of Batman Confidential. And I don't understand why they decided to make it a one-shot. I really sometimes I wonder, I, I really wish we just had like a spy cam inside DC Editorial's uh, offices so we could understand what they, they think when they make these decisions. The art was good, the story was just a general story, and the story would have been better fit for something like Batman Confidential and if it wasn't Batman Confidential, it would have been much better than some of the stuff we've seen in the past in Batman Confidential. So, overall, I'm just, I can only give it two and a half out of five batterings. Uh, I'm a big fan of Howard Chaikin. Uh, he has very distinct style. I thought that the artwork was really good throughout. I liked the dialogue that he wrote. I liked the banter between Batman and the Cavalier at the beginning. Having said that, I really enjoyed how Chaikin uses the interactions between Batman and the Cavalier and Catwoman and the Cavalier to kind of c- compare how similar they feel about the villain. I really love Chaikin running through each sp- suspect like Lois Westlake. She is terrified. She is terrible for stealing millions from Wade Enterprises. And then on to like Carl Block and he's in a panic and so on. I could like hear the narrator from the uh, TV show Dragnet reading the book to me at that point, which I thought was really fun. I really love the line about even a bad guy is a hero in his own movie because that's just so true. I think the great thing that the one shot did is it gave us an interpretation of the Cavalier where now in modern 
modern day, while the character is still very like silly and campy, he can be fun and clever, fun and clever Batman villain when he's written right. And I loved how in really serious moments, Chaykin focuses on the eyes under the cowl on Batman, which I think is a terrific shot that isn't used enough today. So I thought the dialogue was really, really good as well as I thought it was an okay narrative. I wasn't real big on the plot, but it just felt very classic, um, and I really enjoyed it. So I'll give it four out of five batterings. Okay, I didn't like this this comic very much. I did not like his artwork. First page, Batman's arms are like scrawnier than like they look like they're chicken arms compared like in proportion to his whole body. And there are just several scenes where like I don't think I don't think he draws people in correct proportion, or. He has very good foreshortening of the characters. Like in the next, the third page where he's like with against a cavalier, his arms look so weird. And there are se- several scenes where the bat on his on his chest changes in size. There, there's one page where like it changes size like excuse me like three times. So the art was the art was weird. I I also hated how he drew Bruce Wayne. It wasn't a bad story, but it, was, it, it again goes to like a personal thing I have with uh, characterization of Batman. And I think it really loses it when Batman says. The whole, the whole idea of Batman setting up a criminal for what he didn't do and then letting him take the fall because he is a criminal. Do I have to explain how stupid that is? I mean, there was an entire story where he kept the Joker from getting the death penalty for a crime the Joker didn't do. And like, and it's the Cavalier, you know, like one of the most famous D-list villains he's ever had. I, I just thought that was worthless. And like the, the, whole, the whole thing with Wayne investment, it's, it's, a, it's a nice idea for a story, for a confidential story, which, has, which this was meant to be in. But... When you have Catwoman acting more ethical than Bruce Wayne, you know you got problems, and that really sunk the issue for me. There were worse things in like in the, in the series of books we read today, so I'll give it just a, just a one and a half out of five batterings instead of a straight one. All right, so that is going to give Batman Catwoman Follow the Money a total of two and a half out of five batterings. All right, so that is all the reviews we have for this time. Let's start over to Nick with Bat Books for Beginners. And welcome to Bat Books for Beginners. My name is Nick, and today I'm looking at Batman Green Arrow The Poison Tomorrow, written by the classic Dennis O'Neill, who's worked on Legends of the Dark Knight. He started that series off. He wrote the first 100 issues of Asriel, as well as many more. And we've got art today by Michael Netzer, who's worked on Detective Comics with Chuck Dixon, so he's a fairly well-established artist too. Although I must admit, one I've not heard of before. So the Emerald Archer is returning to Bat Books for Beginners. He's been Oliver Queen's appeared once before, but how will he fare on his return? Let's find out. It's me, Batman. Thought you were someone else. I kind of figured that. Robin, this is Green Arrow. Yeah, the arrows and the greenness kind of give it away. You're pretty far from Star City. I thought you could use some help. Batman tracks a delirious Dr. Parsons through Gotham and captures him. But Green Arrow is also following. Green Arrow explains to Batman that Black Canary, his wife, was bitten by Dr. Parsons two days ago and suddenly came over with a disease that had symptoms similar to Dr. Parsons. 
We then learn that Parsons examined poison ivy before his illness, and when she kissed him, she transferred some sort of plague over into his body. An evil guy called Mr. Fenn plans on using poison ivy's disease to spread the plague throughout the world, and then sell the cure at an extortionate rate, making him rich. And he's worked with Ivy to do this. Ivy, however, has other plans of her own, and knows that the cure is not that effective, so she can wipe out most of mankind and start her own brand of humanity. The plan by Mr. Fenn is to put the poison into baby food and get desperate parents to buy the antidote. Batman races after the trucks of baby food, stocking the poison, and stops it just in time. Green Arrow faces off against Poison Ivy to get an antidote for his wife, but Green Arrow ends up fighting her henchman called Jason and is infected by the disease as well. Ivy tells him there is no antidote. Fenn is aware of Ivy's treachery and double-crosses her and blows up her house with Green Arrow inside. Batman arrives and then rescues Green Arrow, Ivy and Jason. Using bone marrow from Jason, a cure is concocted and used on Dinah and Green Arrow. Batman tracks down Mr. Fenn to warn him that he knows what he did. He won't take him into custody, but rather lets Fenn live with the guilt of knowing that he and his kids are infected with the disease. I brought the medicine you requested. Oh, excuse me. You didn't say you had company. It's all right, Alfred. Haven't I seen you before? Perhaps the Renaissance Fair? You were driving that limo. The limo that belongs to Bruce Wayne. Now, do you see why I'm so sure of him? Ollie. Hey, how'd you know? He is the Batman, after all. I think that Batman and Green Arrow make a pretty good pair. They both started off their hero careers as independently wealthy men with an arsenal of nifty gadgets at their disposal. They both have no superpowers but rely on their wits and detective work to solve their mysteries. But they also are very different individuals with a very interesting dynamic together, which, unlike the Superman-Batman dynamic, these guys are level, um, just in their abilities. But Queen almost acts, I think, more like Robin with smart quips and cheeky lines, but he's also endearing, but he can be ruthless when need be. But he's more of the comic relief, but can get serious at times when he needs to be. But I think this story could maybe have done with a little more interaction, because I do like the way these two work together. I think Dennis O'Neill gets that spot on. But I think there could have been maybe just a little bit more of it, because I feel like it was just just starting to warm up, and then it usually cut out, which was a shame. But the story by Dennis O'Neill in general is a popcorn-style of story, a bit of a throwaway. There's nothing massive happening here, but it's still quite fun for such a simple premise, which is a massive challenge for a writer to make something so... Small and basic, really interesting, but for a fun adventure, it's pretty good. I thought that it was great that Green Arrow mentioned that Bruce hasn't removed his mask in the two days that they've been working together, and Bruce says that he keeps it on when he wants to be himself. An interesting character moment there for Bruce. I really enjoyed uh, Poison Ivy's depiction in this book. I think it's one of the best I've seen in comics. Um, Simple, but great. She was really ruthless, diabolical, and beautiful. I thought it was one of the better portrayals of Poison Ivy I've seen. And I think she's a character that can vary massively in how she's portrayed. Really liked this one. Simple, but it worked. 
Michael Netz's art I thought was very good, particularly in his depictions of Green Arrow and Poison Ivy, as I mentioned earlier. But the Batmobile looked like a rocket go-kart or something in this story. really didn't like the look of it. And the scale of it changed all the time. In one panel, it looked like Green Arrow and Batman wouldn't be able to fit into it. The next, it looks like a massive tank. So that was a little uh, inconsistent and not good enough for me. I thought the ending was very extreme. If it's as I thought it was meant to be uh, left... Batman was going to let this man and his family, three children, die from a painful disease. Even I think that's a bit much for Batman. And um, considering there is a cure out there, I didn't quite understand what that ending was meant to imply. Is Batman really going to let them all die from a disease? Or or why? It's a very strange ending and a little confusing. So, not sure about the finish there. But all in all... Simple adventure story between two heroes, but it's fun for what it is. Um, basic, but entertaining. If you're low on books to read and fancy something simple, maybe you haven't read a lot of Green Arrow, you'd like to see a bit more of him, I would recommend this book. Um, it's just simple, but it's a good one for you. So I'll be giving it three out of five batterings. This vigilante guy that thinks he's some kind of a Robin Hood, it's killing my business. What do you want me to do? I want you to find this emerald archer and take care of the problem. So that was Batman, Green Arrow, The Poison Tomorrow. Pretty brief uh, edition of BBFB this time. Remember, you can always pop on the website at thebatmanuniverse.net. Give us some feedback, send us an email. We'd really appreciate that. I'd love to know more about what you guys think of this segment or ways to improve it. And next time I'll be looking at Batman Run Riddler Run where both Batman and Edward Nigma must unite to face a common foe. Will the two be able to work together, or is this partnership destined to puzzle the Dark Knight? See what I did there? Uh, so that's coming up next time. Hope you enjoyed this edition of BBFB. I've been Nick. See you next time, and now I'll send you back to Dustin and the guys. Bye. So, Arrow, once again you've stumbled onto my stage and honed in on my act. That's me. Always hogging the limelight. I seem to recall you lost our last duel. All eight of our last duel. You lost? Yeah, but I've been practicing. A lot. One arrow each. I accept your challenge on three. One. Two. Three. All right, so that was Bat Books for Beginners. Let's get into what we'll be covering next time on the podcast. in on a drugstore might have been easier. Exercise never hurt anyone, Robin. We must always keep the element of surprise on our side. What are you doing here? I might ask you the same question. Pursuing the enemies of law and order wherever they happen to be. Aren't you in the wrong city? On special assignment for the Daily Sentinel. You know my aide, Cato? Robin, the boy wonder. Well, I don't want to hold you up from your crime fighting. Thank you, and good luck to you, Mr. Hornet. Nice to have met you. Gosh, Batman, what are they dressed like that for? Next time, we'll be covering Azrael number 14, Batman number 704, 
Batman Incorporated number 1, Batman Streets of Gotham number 17, Batman The Return, Superman Batman number 78, Batman and Robin number 17, Batman Beyond number 6, Batman Odyssey number 5, Batwoman number 0, Detective Comics number 871, and Gotham City Sirens number 17. this Batman, but the Joker's been borrowing books on pirate lore by the dozens. He must be up to something. Not necessarily, Robin. He may just be improving his mind. So that's uh, everything for this episode. As always, you can head on to the website to check out all the daily news related to the comics and everything else related to the Batman universe. You can join the forums and become a member. If you're having issues, please let us know and we'll be sure to approve your account. Also, we're currently looking for some comic book reviewers. There's a number of comics that we're going to be acquiring some assistance with as far as reviewing them for the editorial section on the website. You can check out the editorials right now, look for a call for reviewers, and you can find out which books we're looking for people to cover. So if you're interested in that, check that out and then send us an email and let us know. In addition to that, we are also putting out a call for podcast co-hosts. Now we are going to do this very cautiously because we don't necessarily need another podcast host, but it's coming to the point where it would be nice to have a reliable set cast on each podcast. In order to do that, we think it might be better to bring in one or possibly two more. If you are interested in doing this, you need to email us at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net and also check the editorial section for the post about what is needed from the podcast co-host. It's not just show up on the podcast and talk about what Whatever we're talking about. Now, this isn't just for the comic cast, this is also for the normal cast as well, but you'll only be appearing on one or the other. In addition to that, this is going to be taken in a audition type, so make sure you read the post on the editorial section in order to find out exactly what you have to do in order to be considered as a new podcast co-host. Besides all of that, you can also leave us a review on iTunes, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And of course, you can email us at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net. So that's everything for this episode. This is Dustin. This is Zach. This is Don. You've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Take care. Thank you for listening. should go pretty quick but at the same time it's pretty autonom nom nom i can't even speak i can't even say that word autonom and uh autonomous i don't i don't whooper oh no i'm ending the show this is never (laughs) going to be heard by anybody except (laughs) who's here right now it's pretty auto auto, i I don't know it's autonomous. <laughs> spell, spell it out. I was, I was about to say. Uh, I don't know.
Type it in the thing. Holy crap. Type it in the thing and I I get it. It's autonomous. Autonomous as well. Okay. Each book needs to be auto not God, there's that word again. Autonomous. Watch the title be Batwoman Autonomous. We'll say it over and over again. All right, so the next thing we've got is on November 3rd, Batman Robin number 16 came out, and there was uh, quite an interesting reveal at the end of that issue. We'll get into uh, the reviewing the comic a little later, uh, and Zach will be talking about what happened in Batman Robin number 16. But uh, some pretty big announcement happened at the very end of the issue where Bruce Wayne tells the world something about uh, him being related to Batman. Uh, and I'll save the reveal, if you haven't read the book, I'll save the reveal for when uh, Zach reviews the book later. But we are going to talk about uh, an interview that was done with Comic Book Resources with the editor-in-chief at DC Comics, Bob Harris, right now. And it doesn't exactly say what happened, but uh, we're going to cover that real quick. So I will read for Comic Book Resources, and Don will read for Bob Harris. Let's talk about... Let's talk a bit about how this will affect the stories themselves. We knew the corporate concept would drive Batman Inc., and Grant spoke briefly with the AP about how this reveal reflects that concept. But can we expect at all for folks to be suspicious of Bruce Wayne being Batman with this news out there? Grant's point of view is that this is the greatest misdirection of all time by Bruce announcing this. In the public's mind, it will separate him further and further from being Batman. This is the man funding Batman is how great... That's how Grant is approaching this. Okay, you know what? Let's just not do that question. <laughs> yeah, because well, spoilers. Yeah, it, if, it reveals if, it. Well, if and if you do this interview, it's gonna be and we have to comment on it. It's gonna be really hard okay, not to fuck comment it. on it. All right, let's just cut, <laughs> let's just cut that out completely. 